This episode is supported by Dove. Narrow beauty standards have permeated our feeds, perpetuating beauty ideals that can't be achieved in real life, impacting girls' self-esteem. To help combat this, the Dove Self-Esteem Project is taking action to support the next generation so they can have a positive experience on social media by providing free resources to parents, mentors, and educators. Dove is tackling the issue of digital distortion with Reverse Selfie, a film rooted in new research on body confidence from the Dove Self-Esteem Project. They're also providing a new confidence kit so that kids and parents can navigate social media with confidence and have a more positive experience online. Head on over to dove.com slash the selfie talk to download the new confidence kit and helpful tips to have the selfie talk today. But Alex. Yeah, Shane. Let's begin this episode. Let's do it. Hello, everyone. I'm Alex and I'm here with my husband, Shane. The babies are in bed, the cat is in her room, and we are so glad that you could join us for happy hour. On this Family Tree Podcast, episode 99. 99, feeling fine. Feeling like Wayne Gretzky. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good original joke. Thank you. The joke being, this is our second time trying to record this because we flubbed up the first intro so bad. Yeah, Shane, Shane definitely didn't like it. Anyway, yeah, it was fine. But well, we've uh, had a long day. Who do we got on this oh, episode? Shane, Alex? we've got two incredible guests, and folks, I cannot wait for you to listen to these two interviews. But first up is a returning guest. I'm loving all these returning guests, but we have Victoria Alexander. She's a reproductive health and childbirth educator and a period coach. So with Victoria, we get into a long and, you know, shockingly informative, considering the subject matter, conversation solely about birth control options and period products. Did you mention to her that you don't get periods? What do you? Oh, get out of here. You get get exclamation points. (laughs) You're running joke lately. It is funny. But uh, anyhow, great conversation. And I was shocked to realize how much knowledge about these things I did not have. As a man, should I listen to this interview? Honestly, yes, because you're going to have to deal with it all when the girls get older and you might have to go out to get them a pair of period underwear or all these other, like a cup, a menstrual cup, or you you should have a basis, Shane, living with three women. All right, I'll get the basis. I'll listen to it. (laughs) I'm in. I'm excited. Good. But the second interview... Another great one and so different, such a departure from our first. So this was with Aisha Hussein. And Aisha is a family divorce and child protection lawyer. What? Should I be worried, Alex? (laughs) So we talk about... just glaze over that, laugh over it? Should I be worried? Oh, get out of here. We talk about uh, divorce, what to do when you are separating from your partner and there are children involved, Uh, raising happy and healthy kids amidst conflict, what different co-parenting structures can look like, and things of that nature. So Shane, it's funny because I do in that interview try to put myself in the place of us getting a divorce to ask different questions just so I can, you know, use names and give examples. And then Aisha got on that train too. So we're just talking about, all right, so when I'm divorcing Shane, how do I ensure that he doesn't move too far out of the city so that he can still be with the girls? And it's, it was good. Nice. She she was amazing. And I have to say, if we ever do divorce, Aisha is my lawyer. Like you can tell she would be a bulldog in court for you. My parents divorced. And to be honest, I don't think they use lawyers. Yeah. A lot of people don't go to court. And she was even saying that, you know, when you think you do need to go to court and do need to get a lawyer. But yeah, very interesting. And I do recommend everybody listens to it. Even if uh, divorce isn't on the table yeah. for you at this point <laughs> or at any point in your relationship. Anyway, 
Let's have a sip of this drink here. All right, Shaney Boy, we've had a long day. So tonight we are going non-alcoholic. Long day, long two weeks. A long two weeks, but we'll get into that later. Okay. But we are drinking Seedlip Grow 42, so the citrusy variant of Seedlip with just some tonic water. Simple, clean. Oh, yeah. We're going to feel real good. Not drinking alcohol right now mm. is the type of excitement that sometimes you get when you do have that real stiff drink after yeah. work or something. Because when I say we've had a tough two weeks, I just mean in the food and drink. Tough and on our bodies. We're not exactly feeling the air quote healthiest right now. Oh, no. Um, no. Because <laughs> so, we had so much fun in a way. It's it's that type of I need a vacation from my vacation type of vibe right now. I feel like Elvis in his meat suit days. <laughs> meat suit isn't that, that the suit that like you know when he's in like the white bodysuit and it cuts down to like just below his crotch or sorry just above his crotch line and that's when he was drinking and eating and not really taking care of himself i don't know <laughs> i've never heard of that i like it you're Thanks. not an elvis fan though are you you're, you don't come from an elvis fam family no but i i do like elvis oh okay yeah yeah, no, so I mean, I, mean I, you know, I'm, I'm happy to be Elvis in his meat suit days. <laughs> My first topic, and this was a topic actually brought to me by your parents. Shane, I had that same topic for my question segment at the end, but that's fine. You can take it. I was going to have it at the end, but because your dad wanted to submit the question like through Instagram. So I was like, put up the question thing, but you never did because he had kind of a funny bit to do with this. And I I liked it. But then I realized we got so many questions a week ago that we didn't actually need to put up the question thing to your Instagram people. Anyway, uh, your mom also wanted to talk about this. Yes. And it's boundaries is the topic. Okay, because we were at the cottage. I was with my in-laws. You were with your parents. And we have two children Mm -hmm. in a cottage. In their cottage. In their cottage. Although the cottage is big, it gets quite small when you have that many people, Mm -hmm. especially if two of those people are children. And I'm assuming a lot of people want to know, how does it go? How do you respect boundaries, Mm -hmm. both parenting and the cottage boundaries? So... I thought we would just talk about how we did it. Now, I wanted to start with cottage boundaries. Right. Because we, we kind of got into a conversation about having this conversation on the pod at the cottage. And your mom was like, but there's cottage boundaries. This is our cottage. So I wanted to just go through cottage and then parenting boundaries. Because one to me is more obvious than mm-hmm. the other. So cottage <laughs> boundaries. Uh, you're staying at someone's cottage. Mm-hmm. You go by their rules. It's Everyone has the things that they they do at a cottage. There's certain doors that need to be closed, certain lights that need to be flicked off and on. And there's a recycling system and a garbage system and a dish system. Yeah. And if you're going to be a good guest, I'm assuming you're going to be doing a lot of the dishes, especially when you have such nice parents as you do who are making us meals every night and treating us like kings and queens. And we're very spoiled while we're at the cottage. Mm -hmm. So you want to pick up, you want to be clean, you want to obey the rules. You know, there's some days I would leave a door open that shouldn't be opened. And then your mom would tell me, <laughs> oh, we like this door closed. Yeah. or And I, I would obey that. And really, it's not a two-way street. They mm-hmm. tell you the rules. I would never go up to John and be like, ooh, could you not put your cup there, please? <laughs> or something, you know, you just can't do that. They Absolutely. tell They tell you and you obey. And usually... It's pretty simple. They also, there's a septic Mm -hmm. system up there. So it's not like at home 
where you can get a little loosey goosey while washing the dishes and keep the tap yeah. running, which I don't think laundry. Anyone, I don't think anyone should be doing that anyway. Mm-hmm. You try to shower a little bit less, especially me. I'm a long shower taker. You so. are. You're the longest shower taker. The longest, Shane. You have less hair than I do, yet it takes you longer to wash. And do you like? Wait, I have a question. Do you just stand there and just like just stand there and let the water run on you? Like, why do you take so long? For me, it's relaxing. It's, I think, in the shower. A lot of people take long showers, by the way. This is like Jill, our our TikTok person, Jillian. She takes really long showers. Some you either do. How or, do you know? She's talked about it. <laughs> and, I'll tell you this much. Anxious people tend yeah. to take longer showers. She is anxious like Be- you, yeah. There's something comforting about it and mm-hmm. relaxing. And to me, it's almost like getting a water massage. I really like it. And I have really itchy, annoyed skin. Do you think it's itchy it's and e- even more annoyed because your showers are so long and hot? And that that can actually damage your skin. No, it's it's not because that no it actually feels good (laughs) i used to take long baths like way too long and the water was too hot and that made my skin very blotchy but i never go over 12 minutes in a shower Mm -hmm. and but for you that's long because you're very reasonable with showers anyway this is a whole weird (laughs) digression the point is you, you listen to those uh rules and with children if they're not to touch paintings or to make couch forts it's really, I when Lou is on the couch, she loves a couch fort. I say no couch forts at the cottage. Yep. But if your parents are there and they want to monitor a couch fort, let, let them have at it. But in general, I say let's not mess up the common living spaces. Anyway, okay, that to me, fairly obvious. Now, parenting boundaries. It's tough. This is where it gets dicey because they're your parents. Mm-hmm. They, they've parented you. They've raised you. Yeah. And now they have these grandchildren So they know how to parent. They've been through it before. Well, more than that, too, I think the grandchildren are for that two-week time span living under their roof. So then I think that there's a comfort level of just, you know, it's tough because there's essentially four parents under one roof, four parents and two kids. And I I kept making the, the terrible analogy of too many too many cooks spoil the broth. I've got a good analogy prepared here. Oh, I'm excited to hear it. So let's say your dad was driving us somewhere right in a car let's just say the cottage just to keep it mm-hmm. all cottage related so your dad's driving us me you and your mom are passengers mm-hmm. now i'm the type of passenger i get a little alarmed if someone hits the brakes really hard you do i also have temperature preferences where the camp it <laughs> needs to be a little cooler than a lot of people might like it so i'd be like oh john's got a little warmer uh, he's hitting the brakes too much. You have a preference for, let's say, lane changes being safe and parking is something you mm-hmm. like. Your mom likes the music to be a certain level. And she also would like him to look in the mirrors more obvious or something just to make her feel more comfortable as a passenger. If everyone voiced these concerns throughout the entire drive, the driver would become very annoyed and agitated right. and not even want to be the driver anymore. Mm-hmm. I would say... Don't speak up if you're the passenger in those moments, unless you're in mortal danger. Mm-hmm. And of course, there's exceptions to every rule, so we should use those exceptions sparingly. For instance, if your dad had the volume cranked to 10, the loudest volume, I might tell him to turn it down. But if you think you can grin and bear it for this period, yeah. do that just because it's going to be uncomfortable. Now with parenting, same thing. We all know how to parent. Mm-hmm. 
And I have a thing for safety. I'm more safety conscious than mess conscious. But when I'm parenting, just let let me be and let me watch the children the way I watch them. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to make my own set of rules. And sometimes you might overhear what I'm telling Lucy or Betty, Mm -hmm. possibly not the things that you would do if you were parenting. But when you're parenting, you do you, one parent at a time. Otherwise, there's just this anxiety cycle. Mm -hmm. Shane, I think that is an incredible analogy. I didn't think it was going to be that good, but I think that is so perfect. And it's tough, you know, if you're with your parents, especially if you have a a huge comfort level with your parents and you, you say everything, like my parents rib on each other and me and my brother and Shane all the time. And, you know, we're very vocal as a family, which is great. However, it can lead to issues, like Shane said, when everybody is trying to contribute to the rules or to their preferences or to whatever, and it can just become a lot. So we ended up kind of, well, my mom and I ended up having a conversation just about each other's boundaries. And I think that for so long, and this is like since Lucy was born, so for three years, because of our comfort level and because of our love for each other, we never wanted to actually impose boundaries or just say them. But I think we both had an idea of what those boundaries would be in our minds. And when the other person unknowingly crossed them, then we'd get irritated and we get annoyed and we'd voice that annoyance. So then we, you know, my mom and I went to play tennis and on the way to and during the tennis match and on the way home, we were kind of, we were were talking about this and, you know, just trying to be really blunt and really open about what those boundaries needed to be to keep everybody sane. Yes. And I'll, we'll just say the impetus. We were at a local restaurant and Lucy was having an ice cream cone outdoors. The ice cream cone was dripping a little bit and it was, it looked like to your your mom that the ice cream cone could fall, fall, the ice cream part. So your mom said, hey, watch watch the ice cream cone. It's going to fall. And she wanted me to eat around the cone. Mm -hmm. And from my vantage point, I was like, man, cone's not going to drop. I can tell. Like, I just know Lucy and the way she's eating ice cream cones. She's had that cone before. It's not going to fall. So I'm like, eh, Alex, do you want to eat around the cone? I don't really. <laughs> I don't lick ice cream cones. Yeah, this Shane, is a- Shane bites his ice cream. I just, I hate licking ice cream cone. <laughs> Something about it freaks me out. I have ice cream cone anxiety, you could call it, from being a child and having parents Get look all their after- slobber all over those cones. When I was a kid, all I wanted was to have my cone and have no one mess with it. <laughs> but my parents were like slobbering all over it and worrying if it dripped. And it, the juice wasn't worth the squeeze. Honestly, I have a phobia <laughs> of ice cream cones because to me, it's just like, let it drip. Let it fall. Let's have that moment. But anyway, that's just the way... I look at it. So then your mom mentioned it again. But then she walked over and mentioned it again. Mm -hmm. And I lost my cool a little bit. And I looked at you and I'm like, Alex, are we going to take care of this? Like, Mm -hmm. because you know about my ice cream phobia. I'm like, are you you going to do what it takes? And you didn't do anything. And then Lorna walked back a little bit upset because we weren't doing what she requested. Mm -hmm. Now, if Lorna was the parent in charge at this point and she wanted to lick around the cone, I wouldn't be like, no, we have, I have an ice cream phobia. Don't no. do that. She could do whatever she wants. It's just I chose not to. And secretly, I'm waiting for my big hero moment where Lucy drops the ice cream off the cone, has a cry, 
And I say, I'm buying you another scoop. Don't worry. And I give her that hug. I haven't had that moment yet. It's In a way, it's like every dad's dream to have that moment because it's so like, it's the epitome of childhood or something. Yeah. Summer, summer childhood <laughs> So it's childhood like a moment days. I wanted. That was basically the straw that broke the camel's back, which sparked a discussion because these moments on their own would be nothing, but it was accumulation of little moments like this. Mm. And since these boundaries were established, everything was just so much easier. It was. So much more relaxed. Yeah, no, and I, I think that goes for everybody involved, right? And it, it's learning. It's like learning my parents' boundaries at the cottage, our boundaries with parenting, and just how we can... You know, when there is something to say, and like we're, I was talking to my mom about this, when she feels that she does need to say something, she wants to be able to say that without feeling like she is intruding, right? So it's learning. It's learning how we can get to that point and have everybody still feeling okay and like everybody's being helpful. Yeah. Yeah. No, and what, like when we were leaving today from the cottage, even though there is that like, you know, one day or two of tension before we all hashed it out and you know had that talk that was kind of like years in the making we left the cottage there and we're like oh man like it sucks to be going oh i it was sucks to be going I'm, and, I'm nostalgic for that time period yeah and it was such a great two weeks with my parents like the girls were in bed early every night and then it would just be me shane my mom my dad out having drinks having dinner you know either sitting by the fire or watching movies and it was such a special time and it was so nice. And we were both saying, we're not even upset that this kind of conversation had to happen in the middle of vacation because it's, you know, helping all of us in the end. And it's kind of leading all of our relationships to a healthier and more communicative point. Yeah, I was very happy it happened because look, I'm never going to bring this up. I'm never going to have an awkward conversation with your parents. Mm -hmm. It's just something that's, I don't know, would feel way out of bounds if I pulled your mom aside. And it, even if I tried to talk nicely to your mom and dad and be like, oh, this, I'm going to come across like an asshole. <laughs> so I think in this scenario, the best thing to do is talk to the yeah. person whose parents are yeah. the in-laws and have them handle it. Bridge the gap. Exactly. Yeah. No, I, I think it's good. And I think it is such such a vital conversation that you should have with your parents if you have kids, if you have not had them yet. And like, honestly, don't put it off. I say, I say do it right away. And I wish we had. And because we hang around them so much, that's why it's worth it. If it was my mom, who we see very infrequently, mm -hmm. it would be like, hey, let's just never say anything because <laughs> we're only going to see her once a year. Yeah. We see your parents every weekend, sometimes every day. Sometimes every day. You're not yeah. getting there. Every day, really. But yeah, crucial conversation to have. And I hope that if you are listening and you're thinking that, you know what, maybe even if even if that relationship isn't coming to that boiling point right now, and if you could see it happening down the line, even if it's, you know, a couple years down the line, do it now. Save everybody that headache and just have that conversation. Theory about couples. I was looking around because my dad came up at the cottage. Is the perfect way to be in a symbiotic relationship to have one high anxiety stress person and one fun loving person? Because I was like, okay, my dad... And Roseanne, mm -hmm. so that's the perfect relationship. Your parents are like the perfect couple. Mm -hmm. And you and I, we seem to f fall into that. Yeah. Is, is that the case <laughs> with every couple? Like, I actually, I feel like two fun-loving people can it, have it, a wonderful relationship. 
but I don't think two hot people like me. No. Like, it's also the case with your mom and Brad, her husband. Yes, it is. And my mom and dad could not work. No, because they was, were both high anxiety. Yeah, they both were micromanaging every element of each other's life. Is that the secret sauce here to longevity? I think for a lot of relationships, it can be because, you know, the groovy, happy to coast by day to day person, which would be me, I need a reminder for a lot of things and I need somebody to keep up the pace and to actually stress importance on certain things or else like I will, you know, forget to pay bills. I will forget to do a million things until it bites me in the ass. And if it's just you going about your high stress, high anxiety, can't stop moving day, you're going to give yourself a heart attack, babe. Yeah. You need me to stay alive, essentially. And just a reminder to not take everything so seriously. Yeah, relax. Yeah. That might, because I do feel like even though chill people can work, I feel like they might get on each other's nerves after maybe 15 years. Be like, yeah, we're too chill. And like, you know, we're not getting anything done. You know, we need to hear from a chill couple on this where both partners are equally zen. Message us. How is it working for you? Do you see divorce down the road? Do you see marriage forever until death? What is it? And how the heck do you how does it work? What's the secret to two relaxed people being in a relationship? Yeah, Maybe I'm, it's just that. I'm curious. I, w- I want to think about all my friends relationships after this, not on air. We're not going to go through that <laughs> and just see if this theory is correct. But anyway, should we get into our first interview? Let's do it. Okay, but before we get to this interview with Victoria, let's tell everyone who we are supported by. We are supported by My Breast Friend. My Breast Friend is the number one choice in nursing pillow for millions of parents around the world who nurse their babies. My Breast Friend. Now that's spelled M-Y-B-R-E-S-T-F-R-I-E-N-D. No A, right Shane? No A in breast. For more than 25 years, My Breast Friend's patented wraparound design has supported people in over 40 countries and thousands of birthing hospitals to support successful nursing. The best thing, in my opinion, about this pillow, not only is it made of like the most comfy, you know, foamy type stuff, it is so nice for me and for my baby, but it actually like attaches through a clip behind you, has a little pocket for your water bottle or for your phone. It's the Mercedes Benz of nursing pillows. I wear it out as if it was a fanny pack. (laughs) You essentially could. Lactation consultants around the world credit the pillow for helping parents achieve longer and more comfortable feeding cycles than they thought possible. I'll attest that and shame will attest that until the cows come home. It's simply the best, most supportive choice for successful breastfeeding. You can purchase My Breast Friend online at buybuybaby.com, target.com, walmart.com, babylist.com, and amazon.com. And now let's get to our interview with Victoria. Victoria, how are you? Welcome back. I'm good. Thank you. How are you? I know. I'm like, it both feels like it's been just yesterday, but you've got an extra child now with so much going on. Lot, Yeah, lots going on. Losing my head uh, slightly, but staying afloat as everybody is, I think, for the most part and, you know, happy about that. <laughs> but how about yourself? How have you been managing? I've been okay. It's been a really uh, crazy year. I broke my elbow, dislocated it, had a couple surgeries. How'd you do that? During the first lockdown, I was like, I'm going to skateboard again. I'm too old to skateboard. That's hilarious. (laughs) Not hilarious. I'm sorry you got hurt, but... (laughs) It's pretty um, funny in hindsight, but um, yeah, so I'm really grateful for online work the past year. (laughs) 
<laughs> I can imagine. You know, it's funny you said that because uh, one of my best girlfriends actually, like two months into the first lockdown, she had a skipping accident and ended oh, up God. like breaking her something on her arm. Like it was like her wrist or her elbow also like something terrible. But these weird like things that we get into to try to pass the time, they're not good for us. No. <laughs> <laughs> so... I'm very happy you're back. You post a lot about, as we know, you are elephant in the the womb, period guru. You actually helped me uh, learn my body's ovulation by like just looking at the discharge and noticing other really subtle changes that I wasn't really good at noticing before. And I got pregnant with Betty because I knew when I was ovulating. And uh, so thank you for that, first of all. Now that I'm done having children, like done, 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 don't want any more, I want to talk about birth control. I want to talk about periods. I want to talk about these things, especially after you have kids, all right? So if we can start with period stuff, period products, let's make this for everybody, kids or no kids. I want to talk period products because you are such a pro. What's your favorite period product? My favorite period product is probably period underwear. And that is something newer to me lately. Okay. I have lots of questions about this. I haven't used it, but people recommend it all the time. Yeah. So for anybody who's not familiar with period underwear, it's pretty much what it sounds like. It's a pair of underwear that it basically has like an absorbent core built into it. So you don't have to use a tampon or cup or extra pad on top or anything. You just free bleed right into the period underwear. And they actually hold a lot more than you'd think. I think a lot of people are nervous. They're like, Oh, what if it leaks through my pants? And it's like, they come in the different absorbencies. And, um, I did a test somewhere in the realm of TikTok at some point, but a pair of period underwear can hold like double the amount of a menstrual cup for some brands, which is crazy. It's like, what, what, what brand holds that much blood? I believe it was the Revel underwear, which is a British Columbia based brand. Mm -hmm. And I can't remember which design it was, but they have some that hold like a lot. Um, and they're like fully lined some of them from the very front to the full, very back with the absorbency. Right. So it's pretty much leak proof. Like you really can't, uh, have an accident. Okay. Okay. A couple questions here. So like, is it really, are the sides really like tight onto your body so that you don't leak? Yeah. So it's, it's interesting. It kind of feels like a, a bathing suit a little bit. It doesn't Mm -hmm. feel like, that material necessarily, but it's, there's like tighter seams that they stay up and you can get period underwear in any design. You can get it in like a thong, in like Mm -hmm. a bikini cut, in a boy short even. Um, so there's so many options these days, which is amazing. And then, yeah, it varies per brand, but like a lot of them, you can just throw them in the wash and then hang dry and you're good to go. Okay. Okay. More questions here. So when, when my kids wear diapers and they pee in them a lot, right? They, the they get really like bloated the diapers and they get really squishy is that what happens with the period underwear no so i don't know what witchcraft they're putting into these but they feel really dry and i do know what witchcraft it is but it's different (laughs) materials brand to brand but they like these brands have the technology down really well so that you don't feel wet like you know how sometimes if you're using like a disposable pad how Mm -hmm. if you go pee and you're like ah it's not time to like change the pad and you pull it back up and it feels like you said that like wet yeah kind of chunky yeah you don't have that with the period underwear which is 
amazing. Um, now the one thing is, and this is something to consider for people that have had kids is that period underwear aren't going to absorb any clots. Right. 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 Like anything chonky is going to sit on top. So you do have to kind of keep an eye where you might like have to a some toilet paper. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they're, they're really like, they don't feel heavy when like, like, do you have to wring them out before you throw them in the wash? Like, how are you just putting that much blood in the wash? So I suppose it depends how heavy your flow is. So it's a good idea when you switch out the pair, which again, because they hold so much, generally one pair will last you like all day or like all night. It's a good idea to take them off and just like put it under cold water and squeeze it out a little bit, Mm -hmm. but it depends on your flow, right? Some people like to use them just for like spotting for days where they don't want to ruin their underwear. You can get a super light absorbency pair. um, And those you can just put like right into the wash. Okay. And I just, one more time for clarification, they don't get like thick and squishy. No, unless you have like left it way, way too long Mm -hmm. where you have a super heavy flow and picked one that wasn't absorbent enough where you might be able to feel like it's really full. But generally if you're getting like a moderate to heavy flow pair, then they're absorbing it with no problem. I honestly, I don't get this. It's funny because people and like a lot of my friends wear period underwear, even just like for night times, like for sleeping and stuff. And then a lot of people recommend them to me either for you know, like the heavy flow postpartum periods or for leaking. Like if you have any kind of um, incontinence issues where you're peeing a little bit when you're sneezing or laughing or something like that, they're like, get period underwear. And to be honest, it sounds so great. I'm so happy it exists, but I just, I haven't, I haven't gone there yet for myself. There's, there's something about it that I almost just don't believe. Like in my brain, I can't trust it. Do you know what I mean? Totally. Yeah. And for some people, it is a little bit too up and close with their body as well, which I haven't tried these, but I did just see in the store that always is making disposable period underwear now, which I would imagine is maybe for people that maybe don't have clean water and can't wash their period underwear or are not comfortable dealing with their bodily fluids. Um, if they're rinsing them, right. Yeah. I, I, I can respect the hesitancy. It's something where like with any reusable or new period product, I'm like, try it on your day off where you're at home and you don't have to leave the house. (laughs) And then if there's any like user issues or accidents, you're uh, in the comfort of your own home. (laughs) That's, you know what? It is so fascinating. And I do, I need to bite the bullet and and get a pair. Like I I truly feel like I need to because I feel like it could be life-changing. But I, I don't like pads. So aside from not catching clots, you said it, it still does not feel like a pad, right? Like I, I haven't worn a pad since I was like, you know, 15. Totally. Yeah. It's a lot drier than a pad. That being said, like if you don't like the feeling of bleeding onto something, that might be an issue. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, um, yeah, so you, for sure. you can still kind of like, if you stand up, you might like feel your flow coming out, mm-hmm. right? Which some people don't like, but that would go for any external product yeah. really. But the other nice thing is because it's like a period underwear is you don't have that sticky adhesive, like with a pad. Yeah, yeah. Um, and a lot of people's skin is really irritated by the adhesive on pads as well. So that's definitely like the happy medium with period underwear is like no irritants and sticky residue. That's amazing. Okay. So you said Revel, I think carries the most absorbent ones that you've seen. What is, what's your go-to or your favorite that you have had experience with? 
So my favorite is by Revel. It's called the Charlie and it's their like boy short one, which I really like for exercising because it's kind of like a boxer brief. So you just feel like super, super covered. That being said, Thinks also makes period okay, underwear yeah, and NYX. Um, now I think Thinks has had some issues with testing of potentially not wonderful materials in their period underwear. So I always recommend small brands that have like high quality control. So being mindful of that, and you can always message these brands as well and ask if they have passed testing for safety of their products. Um, And there's been some studies specifically done on period underwear and companies that have passed the like safe materials Mm -hmm. test, which Revel has, which is great. And again, that's, that's my favorite. I also like the horology brand. They're a small brand from California and they make really, really nice ones as well. Isle, I think they they used to be called Luna pads. Isle is another really great one. They make cloth pads, disposable pads, period underwear, all sorts of stuff. And NYX gets a ton of uh, PR, right? I see them teaming up with like tons of huge influencers. NYX is all over the place. What's your opinion on that period underwear? I haven't tried them personally, just because I do tend to like kind of collaborate Mm -hmm. with smaller brands. However, I know a couple of their period underwear pairs have tested for higher levels of like the certain ingredients that aren't great, but generally they're a pretty safe brand. Um, I can't remember off the top of my head, the name of the company that ran this like big test on all the period underwear in the lab to test for these like materials that can be toxic that have carcinogens in them. But if anyone is interested, if you Google like testing of period underwear, I'm sure it'll come up and you can see all the brands and which styles specifically are kind of, you know, maybe not the best option versus better options. No, it's so good to know. Okay. So I do, I do want to try this. I, I might eventually order a pair of Revel something just to try it because honestly, I, I hate, I hate pads. And then I know like when I was, you know, when you're postpartum, especially, even before you get your period, if you're just dealing with like bleeding, I couldn't wear a pad. So I just, I wore uh, diapers every day, like depends yeah. <laughs> silhouettes, wore them every day, swear by them. And they just, they felt more comfortable than pads. Like, like you said, like um, pads, the adhesive can sometimes irritate your skin. I always get like a, an, you know, an ugly butt rash and I don't want an ugly butt rash. Even mm-hmm. if nobody's looking there, I just don't want it. So I think that this would be right at my alley. Like, do you think it the rebel ones, um, could hold enough for like postpartum bleeding? I would imagine. So I think it would depend. Like if people have already had kids before, they might know better how often they would have to change their pads. Mm -hmm. Cause it's one of those things where it is like, it's effort to have to change a pair of period underwear. So if you were feeling that you were having a really, really heavy flow, then maybe like, even like you said, like sometimes diapers or like the disposable period underwear might be a better option in that instance. But if it's something that somebody feels like they would use for their menstrual periods Mm -hmm. after as well, you definitely get your bang for your buck. Like if you properly take care of them and make sure you're not putting them in the dryer, a pair can last you a good five years. That's amazing. That's Mm -hmm. so amazing. Okay. So, you know, talking about long lasting period products, I've been on the cup for, I don't know, 10 years now. Like I've been on the cup for ages. I love it. I'm still using the first one that I knew to come out, which was the Diva Cup. So I still use the Diva Cup. Do you 
have any favorite cup brands, any you know are good or are bad? Like, should I not be using the Diva Cup? I don't know anything about this. So there's not necessarily bad cups, especially because cups are regulated by uh, Health Canada, or if you're in the States, like the FDA. So there is quite a process for them to go through to be approved. So all the cups on the market there that are accessible in North America, at least that's what I can speak to, are safe materials, safe to use. The thing is, is that they come in different shapes, right? So the mm-hmm. Diva Cup is that like bullet shape, it's called, where it's kind of that triangular funnel shape, um, which works really well for a lot of people's anatomy, but some people find that the tail might stick out or it just feels like it's not kind of all the way in there is Mm. what some people might say. Uh, in which case my, my first troubleshooting advice to people is always try flipping your cup inside out. That helps take some of the length down. Um, that can help for like people that feel like it's sticking out people that are having bladder pressure when their cup is in people that are leaking using it flipped inside out how would that help with leaking? So for some people, if they're leaking, they're not getting a good seal with their cup. Um, And sometimes that might even be if the like kind of circumference of the top of the cup is too wide, which is causing it to kind of fold a little bit and not seal. So by flipping it inside out, it just displaces the way that the pressure on like the lip of the cup goes. Mm -hmm. So that can help some people with leaking. Okay. So when I picture my period cup and how it works, Does it work by just like sitting underneath your cervix and then like collecting or does it form like a seal on your cervix? So it depends on how high your cervix is, meaning like how much room there is between the opening of the vagina and the cervix, right? Mm. So some people insert their cups high where it is sitting closer to the cervix, where somebody with a low cervix or like less room in there, it might be sitting a little bit lower. Some people might just prefer to insert it a little bit lower, but it generally, it creates that seal against the pelvic floor, like the vaginal walls. So it's not suctioning against the cervix. It's kind of like gripping onto the walls to um, stay in place there, which is why it's really important with removal to break that seal. Cause otherwise you can imagine that suction. If you're just pulling, it's going to pull the pelvic muscles with it. Yes. Okay. So do you have, do you have a favorite cup brand, a favorite, you know, one that you recommend when people ask you? It all depends on their needs is the thing. Um, what I usually direct people to is the put a cup in it website. I think it's just put a cup in it.com slash quiz. You can go to, and they have all the cups. They consider every single cup brand. There is all the different sizes. It'll ask questions about like your flow, your lifestyle. If you've had kids, if you haven't had kids, how high your cervix is. And it will take from like the hundreds of cups out there and give you the best recommendation. The ones that I use the most when I do use cups is the Lunette cup and the Kind cup, which are two completely different cups. Lunette is very similar to Diva. It's that like bullet shape. So the same shape, it's just a little bit softer. And then the Kind cup, which actually isn't available in Canada yet. It has an interesting ergonomic shape to it. Okay. The, the fun cup is one that's available in Canada. That's similar where it just angled a little bit differently in the cup. It's hard to explain. Wait, yeah, yeah. Like, like what? Like, are we talking like major angles here or? Yeah. So it almost looks like lopsided is the okay, way that okay. I would describe it where the bulk of the cup sits to one side. And that's just because the anatomy of like the vaginal canal, it's not just like a straight stick, mm-hmm. right? Like things curve and form to it. So those cups I find just like sit a little bit more comfortably in the body with the anatomy. Okay. And, you know, so when I look at the diva cups too, because that's like 
I made a mad dash when I was getting my period postpartum. I was like, oh my God, I can't use a pad. And, you know, I don't, I don't want to deal with tampons because I know I want to get back into cups, but I run to Shoppers Drug Mart. They only, I think they actually had a different one now. They may have had an always cup as well by always brand. I think there's a Tampax one. Okay. Yeah. So, but I'm like, I don't know these ones. I'll just go Diva Cup again. And they have like three different sizes. And the one is like, if you are very young and then the next one is like for adult women, then the next one is for adult women that have had kids. And I'm like, why do I have to get this massive cup? So why do I have to get this massive cup? <laughs> so you don't have to. It's a blanket description they use to like try and generally help people okay. pick which one would be for them. So again, some brands do that. Some brands don't. And their thinking is that Sometimes people that have had kids, if they've had a vaginal delivery, that their pelvic floor muscles might be a little bit weakened. So they might need a firmer cup, the size Mm -hmm. twos, like the bigger cups are usually a little bit firmer. They're a tiny bit of a wider circumference. Um, And then there's the, also the assumption that some people that have had kids then have a heavier period for a little while after having kids as well. But the big one that they're kind of taking into consideration there is the integrity of the pelvic floor. And, you know, is there dysfunction? Is there, you know, all the... The uh, incontinence that may come yes. with postpartum um, for people that maybe haven't tried working with like a pelvic floor physiotherapist. But mm-hmm. at the end of the day, it's important to consider other things as well and not just that. Because there's people that have had kids that are like, I have a light flow. I don't feel like I'm having pelvic floor issues, in which case I'm like, then get the size one. That should be fine. So taking your like flow into consideration is really important too. Because mm-hmm. if you're having a really light period, you might not need the big honker in there, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's just done for the first couple of days. But, you know, speaking of pelvic floor issues, because I definitely have those listeners of this podcast hear me all the time complaining about that. But when it comes to prolapse, I, I don't have any serious prolapse or anything, but can you use a cup? Do you know if you do have prolapse? So you can. You just have to be careful and it kind of depends what degree of prolapse that might be. Mm -hmm. So if you're actively working with like a doctor or physiotherapist for higher grade prolapse, they probably would likely advise you not to until you have kind of a control over your pelvic floor. But the main thing with that, which again, this is important for everyone is breaking the seal before removal. So again, it's suctioning to those pelvic floor walls, but somebody with a lower cervix and prolapse maybe wouldn't have enough room in there, if that makes sense Mm -hmm. to use one. But generally again, it's, it's suctioning against the walls and not quite hopefully up near the cervix. So as long as you're breaking that suction and removing it, you're totally good to go. Um, the concern and like controversy out there with prolapse and cups is people that aren't properly educated in how to remove them and just like yank it out willy nilly. And that suction could pull kind of internally with that, right? So making sure that you're breaking the seal is super important. Okay. I'm glad you're saying this because I'm trying to think of like even going to the bathroom before this, like I have my cup in, I don't know how I'm pulling it out. Am I just, I might be just yanking her out willy nilly. Like I think (laughs) I might be, I'm not sure what I'm doing, but I think I'm doing that. I'm I'm, (laughs) going to focus on this next time, but I might be doing that. Okay. So I've tried to get friends on a cups before, right? And they're like, they don't get it. It's like me with the period underwear. Like you just you don't get it. You're trying to get your head around it and and change, especially with such a vulnerable thing is tough. So I've tried, like they've asked me questions like, oh, well, how do you put it in? How do you know that it's in there? How do you take it out? And I just say, well, you just yank it out. 
And to put it in, you you like kind of fold it, put it in, and then do a little turn. And then I just kind of make sure that nothing is like concave, right? And that everything is. But I, I feel like I'm doing a bad job explaining this to people. So if somebody was to ask you like, how do I put it in? And then how do I take it out properly to try to wrap their head around this thing? How do you describe that? So usually I would tell people to Google different folds, first of all, to figure out what way they like to fold their There's menstrual cup. folds? Yeah. Jeez, you're blowing my mind, Victoria. <laughs> I have some reels on my Instagram somewhere where I've, I probably show like 15 different ways to fold it. Oh my God. Because the way that you fold it can affect how it opens up. So if you're getting a really crappy seal, you might need to try a different way to fold it as well. But the way I would kind of explain it is, you know, have like, I would probably just, if I was personally talking to someone, send them one of my reels to like mm-hmm. show them or pull up a picture on Google of the different folds and explain that you want to insert it high enough so that you have about a fingernail's length of your finger inside of you before you hit the tail of the cup. So you don't okay. want the tail sticking out. If you can get like that tiny little end of your finger in as well, that that should be a good time. And that then when it releases, it should pop open. And exactly like you said, give a little twist, make sure that you feel like it's securely in there. You can even give a little tug on the tail and make sure it feels like it's not going anywhere. Mm-hmm. And then of course it might take a couple tries inserting it to get a comfortable position, but for removal, the easiest way to say is like, just pinch the base of the cup and then remove it. You shouldn't feel resistance, like super strong resistance. When you're pulling it out, you should be able to kind of reach in, pinch the base a little bit, or if you can't reach it, which is uh, also a moment that many cup users have where they're like, where the F is my cup? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I can't find it. <laughs> you can just insert a finger in, like just one finger and just try and press and find the cup and just press inwards towards the wall to break that seal. Mm-hmm. Um, and then bearing down, like you're like passing a bowel movement. If you can't find the cup helps to like, you're literally birthing your cup essentially Very helps nice. to push it down and out. Kind of beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, you know, I, I don't think it's my fault that I may have been pulling willy nilly because the, the diva cup has the little tail, but I, I thought that was like a handle. So I thought the tail was like a handle that you grab and just pull on. And I was just assuming that's the purpose, but I didn't know that I had to like go above it to right. press and break so- a seal. There is one cup out there, and I believe it's only available in America called the Flex Cup, where they realize that a lot of people have that exact same thought as you, where it's like, oh, this is the string, like a tampon, mm-hmm. right? Where you pull the string out. A lot of people think that with cups. And this Flex Cup has this like device where when you pull on it, it breaks the seal for you so that you oh, can yeah. just tug it out. Oh, that's cool. Um, okay. And I can't disclose too much contractually right now, but there is a cup like that that will be coming to Canada soon. Ooh, that's exciting. That's very exciting. When it does, please give me a ring because may- maybe I should yes. go beyond my old diva cup, although she has been good to me. Okay. <laughs> so if you are leaking, what could that mean? Like you've already been over the fact that maybe you don't have a good seal, but what else could that mean if you're leaking? It could be the wrong sized cup. So mm-hmm. if a cup is too small and there's not enough circumference against the strength of the pelvic floor to keep it in place, that can be causing leaking or like a total cup dumpage, which mm-hmm. also would be horrific if you are out and about, or if it's too big, like I said, how, you know, you can get those like air pockets if it's not able to fully form, um, as well as just, you know, the angle that it's put in, you know, it's kind of like with a tampon, when you're inserting a cup where you kind of want to imagine inserting it towards your spine rather than straight Mm -hmm. vertical. Right. Um, but somebody with like 
a tilted uterus or tilted cervix is going to have to play around with that angle. They might need to insert it a little more vertical or even more horizontal. So for people that are having any leaking issues, trying to make, again, like the the best of the cup you have, because it's expensive to go out mm-hmm. and just like oh buy God. another cup and yes. hope it works. Yes. So I always say like, try different folds of insertion to see if it's the seal, try different angles of inserting it to see if it's the angle, and then um, try flipping it inside out and see if that uh, does the trick too. Okay. Okay. That's good to know. And you know, these aren't for everybody. Like we're talking about going up in there and doing a little dance around the cup inside of your vag, your vagina. Why did I say that? Vag like that (laughs) inside of your vagina to make sure it's in there. Okay. Like not for everybody. I'm very comfortable with that kind of thing. I don't mind it at all. Uh, And for me, it just seems to be the most effective thing that I've ever used. But a lot of people like sticking to tampons, pads, nothing wrong with it. I personally hate pads, but I know a lot of people prefer them. Now, when it comes to tampons and pads, where are your thoughts on that? Because I know there is talk about, you know, environmentalism and, you know, when you're using so many disposable things. And so where where do you stand on everything? So I... My personal standpoint is that if you can find and use and afford organic, that that might be beneficial. There's just less irritants in it, right? So organic pads don't have fragrance. They don't have bleaches. They don't have plastic. The average disposable pad that is not organic is more than 70% plastic, not cotton. The average pad is equivalent to four plastic grocery bags in one pad, which is a lot of plastic, which is bad for the environment, but also not good for your body to be touching um, and absorbing that because our vulva, like is a kind of like a giant membrane. It absorbs everything because it's such a thin Mm -hmm. piece of tissue. So, you know, again, it's just less irritating to our bodies to try and use organic. Some people, again, this is totally just like word on the street. Um, Some people find that their cramps get better when they switch to organic disposables, even uh, because there are less irritants going into the system. And now the main reason I say this is like word on the street is Mm -hmm. because we know that like anything periods is super underfunded in research. So Mm -hmm. we just don't have the funding to do research into why this might be. Uh, Now, if you ask a gynecologist, they're going to tell you there's no documented benefits to using organic versus non-organic. But again, like we can conclude that, okay, well, organic doesn't have bleaches, dyes, anything other than organic cotton. So naturally we know that there are some benefits to not having those irritants in them. We just don't have that on paper. Um, but I always recommend if people are using those disposables to try for organic if they can. Um, and even some of like the big period brands, like always yeah. are coming out with organic options, which are more affordable in drugstores as well, which is really nice to see. So like, is Joni, I have a, I have a, um, I was actually, I was sent them, uh, right before I had Betty, but Joni, this company sent me, um, some, some pads and I use them. Like I made padsicles with them and stuff. And they were great for that, um, but I didn't use them as pads. Now, what a company like that, like, is that totally organic? And I can specifically speak to Joni because I've done some work for them before, and they are like 100% organic. These smaller organic companies, I would say, are more trustworthy than the big big tampon, as I call it, um, options like always, where even sometimes they're organic pads, they sneak 
fragrance into, which is right. really not good. Um, but companies like Joni, they're super, super transparent on their website. You can see every single ingredient that goes into them, right? Cause the, the other issue with the period industry is that they don't have to disclose ingredients on their boxes. So if you've never thought to, if you go to the store and you pick up a box of tampons, you're not going to find an ingredients list. Mm-hmm. You're not going to find all this information, right? Whereas with, um, a lot of these smaller companies, they don't have anything to hide like Joni and their ingredients. So they're going to mm-hmm. list them all. They're going to tell you exactly where everything's sourced from. Um, they're going to prove that everything is like organic cotton. Whereas again, sometimes if you're looking at like always, mm-hmm. you can call anything organic, right? There's yeah. certain like seals that you have to meet regulations for to have like certified, whatever organic, mm-hmm. but anyone in like the wellness industry can slap that word on a package. So it is good to think a little critically and uh, look into the integrity of the brands you're using to make sure you're not being duped. Absolutely. And I'm sure the same goes for tampons, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, because there's massive greenwashing. I mean, in the period industry, in the beauty industry, skincare industry, everything, everybody's saying, oh, it's organic. This is clean. This is green, whatever. And then half the time it's actually not. But when it comes to pads and tampons, you know, Old Faithful, what brands do you gravitate to or recommend to people? So again, I'm like biased to small brands. And I also personally don't really use internal period products very often. So I've got a super fun vulvar skin condition, Oh man! <laughs> um, which uh, makes it very painful to use things internally. So oh. Joni is what I recommend for right. organic pads, um, especially in Canada, it's free shipping, which is really, really handy if they're not in stores. Uh, but there is the brand L, like, which is, is popping like up. E-L-L-E? No, like, like the letter L. Okay, okay. <laughs> which is popping up more in like Walmart, Shoppers, Rexalls. And I believe it's like a sister company of one of the big tampon, as I call it, companies. <laughs> um, but they have pads and tampons and they're organic. Um, and those are pretty legit. Lola is another brand I haven't personally tried. I'm pretty sure I'm seeing them pop up in stores more too. But again, a lot of the more organic options are online only. Um, it's kind of like, sussing it out. V- Vita, I think it's called. It's like a purple package. I can picture it is in a lot of Rexalls and shoppers as well. Uh, usually, I don't know what the marketing scheme is here, but usually they're on like the bottom shelves. Like you got to crouch okay, down yeah. to find the organic options. I don't, I don't know why. Less I don't know funding. what the stores yeah, they're, are thinking. They're pro- yeah. They're probably just like not paying as much for that good placement. I there's totally that for sure happens. Definitely. Yeah. Health food stores though are like the easiest place to find like organic, I know that I want to use the word safe, but like the premium, the premium (laughs) period products, they'll usually have a couple more cup options to the health food stores rather than like shoppers where you're just going to find Diva. Is there, is there anything wrong with Diva? No, there's nothing wrong with, with Diva at all. And I mean, like to us, it's local Southern Ontario, Mm -hmm. which is really, really nice as well. Yeah. I I didn't even um, know it was Canadian. Yeah. Kitchener. (laughs) Oh my God. I had, I see, this is a thing like these things that I use every single month for the past two decades of my life. And like, I know nothing about them. We so, don't question <laughs> it, right? <laughs> the worst. And this is why we're here today, Victoria, to get more educated. Cause of course you are the pro. So now let's move on to birth control. Unless there's anything you think I'm leaving out of this, you know, kind of almost basic, but necessary period product conversation. Do you think there's Hi. anything? I think that we tried it all. I think my 
parting advice on that topic is just to like use what you feel comfortable using. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people are like, oh, my friends are telling me I should try a cup. But if like you're somebody that maybe has like trauma in any way, shape or form with blood or like dealing with your period or vaginas, like internal period products might not be for you. Mm -hmm. Um, But if you're feeling open to it, trying things is always great, but uh, do what's best for you. Not just what you think is like cool or what everyone is telling you you should do. Nope. I think that's great advice. Okay. So moving on to birth control. As I told you, I do not want any more children. Shane has not gotten the snip yet. And until he does, let's talk birth control. So we are currently practicing coitus interruptus, which has been effective for us. But for those who don't want to take the gamble. So we're going to we're going to talk about more concrete options. So IUDs. You seem to love IUDs. I know you have I, you make IUD uh, copper earrings. You've got a yes. necklace. I love it. Tell me about IUDs because other than the fact that I, I know several of my friends have them, they offered me one after I had my second baby. Uh, I said no only because I just, I don't know, I just didn't want anything else going on in there. But what exactly is an IUD? How does it work? Yeah. So IUDs, there's two different types, right? There's hormonal and non-hormonal, both visually look the same. It's like a little T-shaped device that gets inserted through the cervix up into the uterus Mm -hmm. and they function a little differently. So the copper IUD, which is non-hormonal releases like little trace amounts of copper, which essentially repels sperm from attaching to an egg and makes it so nothing can implant into the uterine wall. And the hormonal IUD works a little bit similarly by releasing synthetic progesterone, again, to prevent attachment of sperm to egg, to prevent implantation. And in some people, it stops ovulation. Um, Now that's not in everyone. So that's essentially how they work. Now, I think they get a really bad reputation um, because people love to share their horror stories and their bad experiences online more than they like to share good experiences. (laughs) Yeah. So there are like side effects and risks of IUDs that sometimes people maybe just aren't made aware of before Mm -hmm. getting one, which is completely a F up on their healthcare provider's behalf. You can't make an informed consensual decision if you're not presented with the benefits, the risks, and the alternatives in healthcare. And there's a lot of that missing when it comes to birth control services, unfortunately, which leaves a lot of people feeling like, oh, IUDs are terrible. And it's like, well, it might've been preventable. Um, But the biggest side effect that people have is like cramping and spotting long-term after an IUD insertion. Uh, Now this is way more common with the copper IUD, which is because it can change the way that our blood vessels are like constricting and dilating. So a lot of people, you're, you're pretty much guaranteed to have heavier and more painful periods with Mm -hmm. the copper IUD, which is why they are less recommended. Whereas with a hormonal IUD, that's less common. Typically a hormonal IUD will help to reduce bleeding and pain, um, which is why they're kind of first of the line recommended for people with like endometriosis. Um, however, as you can imagine something being inserted into your uterus, a foreign (laughs) object, your body can can be like, um, hello, we Mm -hmm. did not invite this in. Like we know this isn't a baby. So like, what is this doing in here? So for some people, their body might start to reject the IUD. Okay. And when I say that, I mean, like 
it, it could be small scale, just like figuring it out for a few months where it's more crampy, um, bleeding a little bit, you know, here and there, and it might resolve. But for a small percentage of people, it might fully reject. So when I say that, like your body might push it out. My neighbor actually one day was like screaming across the hall and she texted me and she's like, oh, I'm in my shower and my IUD just fell oh my out. Gosh. And I was like, you have a son now. Like this is your, this is That's your child, wild. your little IUD. <laughs> That's wild. Yeah. So it's really important when you get an IUD to check the strings. So how I was saying like the IUD sits in the uterus, but there's these little strings, these little plastic strings that sit on the outside of the cervix, like in your vaginal canal, Right. which generally you shouldn't be able to feel unless you're looking for it. You shouldn't be able to feel it during like sexual activity, depending again on like how much room you're working with in the vaginal canal there. But it is important to, if your healthcare provider doesn't show you how to ask them, like, how do I check my strings? Uh, Cause you want to have a general knowledge of like, okay, if I reach up in there, can I feel a little bit of string? Cause if one day you suddenly feel a lot of bit of string, that IUD might be making its way out of your cervix. That's like the maintenance of IUDs is checking your strings like once a month, but yeah, they're, they're super effective. They're the most effective form of hormonal birth control, uh, more than the pill because you set it and forget it, right? Like, uh, depending on the brand IUDs can last anywhere from three to 10 years. Wait, how, how effective are the copper ones? The copper ones are equally as effective. So they're still more effective than the pill as well. So it is a, good option for people that want a non-hormonal birth control method, Mm -hmm. as long as they're having manageable periods, right? So somebody that's already having really heavy and really painful periods, copper IUD wouldn't be a good fit for them because it's going to make it potentially a little bit worse. The other thing is that IUDs can increase your risk of ovarian cysts a little bit, and it's not any cancerous cysts or anything, but because it can disrupt ovulation, sometimes little follicles will fill with fluid. So for somebody with like PCOS, a copper IUD also might not be a good idea because that might increase their risk of cysts. So it's really all about knowing these pros and risks and weighing them out and being like, is it worth it? Is it not worth it? And that being said, even with the hormonal IUD, one of the big benefits is that most of the brands do not contain synthetic estrogen, which is a big concern in hormonal birth okay. control. Um, is that is that one of the cancer causing things about birth control? Like what what's wrong with a synthetic estrogen? The so no the like big risk with synthetic estrogen is blood clots, which is oh, what yeah, um, yeah. people are like concerned don't about in those. the pill. No, we don't <laughs> want those. Um, which of course it's a very low chance if you're taking the combination pill, which has synthetic progesterone and estrogen in it, but it is possible, right? For example, somebody who has chronic migraines where they're getting like one migraine a month, at least a hormonal birth control with estrogen would not be a good idea because with those chronic migraines, you're already at increased risk of blood clots. So you wouldn't want to be on a birth control that would heighten your risk of blood clots, which is why IUDs can be great because they are synthetic progesterone only as well. Some people find that synthetic estrogen can have side effects like lower libido, Mm -hmm. dryness, mental health, side effects as well. Some people, if they go on like the pill again, for example, might experience like heightened anxiety or depression, or some people say they just don't feel like themselves when they're on it. So the IUD can be a good option to try because it doesn't have that synthetic estrogen. All right, Victoria, we're going to take a quick break and let our listeners know who we're supported by. 
We are supported by Mini Miosh. Mini Miosh is a premium, organic, ethically made, and sustainable kids and babies clothing company founded and created in Toronto. Mini Miosh believes in quality over quantity, and they make, I mean, the best basics that you can find for your littles. Fashionable wardrobe staples that are soft, comfy, timeless, and can be passed from kid to kid regardless of gender. And your kids will absolutely love them if they're anything like Lucy mm-hmm. or Betty. Mm-hmm. Now, some people may say Betty doesn't even have a real opinion because she's only <laughs> 13 months old. And to that, I say, you're wrong. She cries when she's in other clothes, essentially. She does. Yeah. Mini Miyashi, you know, their cotton fabrics are knit and dyed locally. They only use GOTS certified organic cotton and low impact non-toxic dyes. They're on a mission to leave the planet better off for our little ones than when they arrived on it. And they believe that every little bit counts. So you can find the company online at minimiosh.com or at minimiosh on Instagram and Facebook. And if you use the promo code thisfamilytree15, you will get 15% off your entire order. This is available in Canada and in the US. Again, that is minimiosh.com and thisfamilytree15. But we are also supported by Hello Bello. Being a parent is hard, like really hard. So when you go to find diapers to prevent the next eventual blowout, finding a diaper that's absorbent and soft without spending a fortune shouldn't be just as tough. And it's almost impossible to find one with cool designs. Oh, that's the number one reason Shane likes Hello Bello. For me, it is. <laughs> Co-founded by Kristen Bell and Dax Shepard, Hello Bello is built on the simple idea that all babies deserve the best, which is why they offer premium baby products at affordable prices. Their diaper bundling service lets you choose from over 20 fun, different rotating designs, and each bundle, so this is like a subscription service that comes to your door, to your doorstep every month. Ding dong. Oh, there it is. <laughs> but each comes with seven packs of diapers, four packs of plant-based wipes, and even one full-size product freebie with your first order. Plus, you get 15% off any of the add-ons. So like the bubble bath, the wipes, the diaper ash cream, the detangler. There are so many things you can choose from, and everything is so good. So to get Hello Bello super soft, super absorbent, and super affordable diapers delivered right to your door, ding dong, go to hellobello.ca and use the promo code thisfamilytree34 30% off your diaper bundle order. That's a huge bang for your buck and a lot of potential blowout saved. That's right. That's hellobello.ca promo code thisfamilytree30 to start bundling with 30% off your first order. Don't forget that's hellobello.ca promo code thisfamilytree30. This promo is applicable to Canadians only. And now back to our interview with Victoria. So I, when I was on the pill, like I've been off it for maybe 20, 10 years, I think, 10, nine or 10 years. Uh, but when I was on it, I was on a, a progesterone only pill because so I get migraines like and I'll get uh, cluster migraines and the migraines I get are called complicated migraines. So like they come with paralysis and lots of vomiting and it's like confusion. Like I kind of black out. It's very scary stuff. Not a good time. <laughs> no, no, no. Terrible, terrible times. So I was on progesterone only, but then the progesterone only pill is tough because you have to take it. And I mean like the minute to the minute every day. And like I did it. I just, uh, I hated, I hated taking the pill. It always just made me nervous. And then I just, I started, I started getting worried about things and I don't know. So that's why I I started considering IUDs and whatnot. And then, you know, just went back to the old faithful condoms and when I didn't (laughs) want to have a child. So, (laughs) but um, yeah. So is there, is there any type of, I guess, I mean, there's gotta be, but like when we talk about hormonal birth controls, if you were somebody, and as somebody actually wrote this question in, she's affected very negatively by hormonal 
methods of birth control. And they make her, she had like cry and really upset, not herself. So how, what is, what's the best option there? So if they were wanting to stick with a hormonal method of birth Mm -hmm. control, again, I don't know what they might've been on before. I would guess probably like whether it's the pill, the patch, the ring, something that contains synthetic estrogen, it would probably be beneficial for them to try something that's really, really low hormonal dose. So something like the mini pill, like you were saying, which is what we call the um, progesterone only pill, because it's really, really small doses of those synthetic hormones every day, which is why it is important to take it at the exact same time every day so that your body isn't fluctuating if you're taking it late and then it potentially not working for contraceptive mm-hmm. reasons there. But um, the mini pill in that instance would likely be the best option for that instance, uh, because mental health side effects is definitely a big one of a lot of birth controls, especially with that synthetic estrogen in it. And the other unfortunate thing is a lot of doctors won't believe people when they say they're having side effects from their birth control, whether it be like that, like crying spells, mental health being affected. Um, libido is a huge one. A lot of people like feel like they lose their sex drive when they're on birth control and doctors will be like, oh, it couldn't be the birth control. Like right. it can't be the birth control. It can be the birth control. Um, mm-hmm. It's affecting your reproductive hormones, right? So it can be hard to stand up for yourself sometimes to your doctor, but like, putting your foot down or going to like a health clinic where they'll be maybe a little bit more open mm-hmm. to switching you um, to a different method. But like, even when it comes to the pill, right there, you've got options, you've got combination progesterone only. And then within that there's dozens of different brands with different levels of hormones. So it sometimes it is trial and error of just figuring out what level of hormones agrees with your system. Mm-hmm. And is there one method that's like safer than all the other methods, whether it's, you know, cause of the lack or midi- less side effects or fewer, I don't know, less chance of risk of blood clot or of any, anything else that could happen negatively down the line. Right. So like I said, anything progesterone only is going to have the benefit that it doesn't carry the risk of blood clots and things with estrogen. So it's not so much, which is the best of those it's thinking what's the most dangerous, um, which is the shot. So the depot shot which is an injection that you get once a month, you can get at the pharmacy or at your doctor and that shot, there's different variations of it again with hormone levels that are in it, but it's like a supercharged injection of hormones all at once. Um, so there's been studies and doctors say this as well, um, that show bone density loss over long-term use of the shot. So it's one of those things where You know, if you are somebody that maybe had a kid and wants like a year between trying for another one and you're like, I want something that's going to, you know, I'm not going to have to maintain a lot where, you know, it might be fine for like a couple years to be on the shot, but anything more than that studies show that there is bone density loss issues, which is not good. Nothing else, no other forms of hormonal birth control carry that risk, but the shot is one to know about that does. So again, for short-term use, it can be fabulous because it's one quick injection that your pharmacist can do a month. But that is one where sometimes it isn't talked about the uh, long-term health risks of that. That's so interesting. I I didn't even know it existed. But I feel yeah. like I feel like if I had asked for birth control options in the middle of my kids, that I guess might have been offered to me. But I I didn't even know about that. And then you know when it comes to the ring, I remember it's the Nuva ring, right? Yeah, it was a big one anyway. I remember that. 
And I don't know anything about patches. But when it comes to things like a ring and a patch, which are, you know, not as common, or maybe they are for younger people, I don't know. But are they just as effective as like the pill, IUD? Where do they fall on that scale? So generally the ring and the patch, which for anyone listening, that's not familiar, the patch is just like, it's almost like a little bandaid that you put on your skin once a week. And the ring is inserted into the vagina once a month. Again, it depends which site and their statistics, but they're a little bit less effective than the pill. And it's not the efficacy of the hormones and the way they're being released. It's user error. So people that are not remembering which day and which time of the week to replace their patch or people that are putting the ring in improperly, or you know what I mean? Um, It all comes down to user error, which is also why the pill varies in efficacy as well, right? There's perfect use and then there's imperfect use. That, okay. The ring. Cause I remember I considered this when I was younger, could it like... Can, do, do you take it out when you have your period? Like, could you use a cup at the same time as the ring? Is it going to fall out when you have sex? How does it just stay there? So it tucks in like right behind. So in our anatomy, it's hard to verbally explain. It's got like a little <laughs> pubic ridge, like a bone okay. kind of near our cervix where the ring kind of is held in place by our anatomy, which is nice. So you can have sex with it and that's totally fine. There's different ways to use the rings. So some people will put it in for three weeks, take it out for a week. And then when their period's done, put one back in, you can actually use the ring continuously as well. If you want to try skipping a period where you can just like we put one in once every three weeks or once every month. It depends on the brand, but yeah, it's generally like very non-interfering with anything else going on up there. Um, right. The only thing you wouldn't be able to use with the NuvaRing would be a menstrual disc. So like the Nixit. Okay. I've seen, I've seen photos of that. Yeah. They're like flat cups. They're like, they're like uh, low bowls. Kinda. Yeah. So it's actually a disc. Um, they call it a cup for marketing purposes. Cause that's what's trendy, but it functions very differently from a cup, but it sits like right up against the cervix and tucks into that bone that I said is kind of where wow, the ring yeah. is. So it would just kind of be like overcrowding to try and use those simultaneously. It seems busy, yes. And then yeah. add your hand in there trying to get the things out and put them back in. That That's a lot going on. Totally. <laughs> Wait, okay. Since we're on this, how do you get the, the disc out? Because I've seen them. They are shallow. Yeah. So with Nixit, for example, since that's a, a popular one, um, you kind of just have to reach in and like hook your finger along that rim mm-hmm. um, to try and pull it out. Now there are some brands that have like a pull hook. Moonflees is one, like monthly, but moonfly, um, where it has a little ridge built into it. So it's easy to find and pull out, but it, it's a lot of practice and a learning curve, just like like when you first use a cup and you're like, how am I going to get this out? It's getting to know your anatomy even further with a disc than a cup. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah, I can, I can honestly only imagine, I think I've seen you holding them out because the Nixit comes to mind. Okay. So I have a couple community questions for you. I've thrown a couple in so far, heavy periods after baby, like super duper heavy. I can attest this as well, actually. I'm assuming that's normal because I'm getting them. My friends complain about them, but normal. Yeah. So typically it can take up to a year 
for your periods to kind of regulate out. Now, the rule of thumb for what is too heavy of a Mm. postpartum period is two things you want to be thinking of. One being your flow. If you're having to change your tampon or pad or whatever you're using sooner than every two hours, that is what we consider like too heavy and you need to talk to your doctor. Um, And the other one is clots. A lot of people, again, postpartum will experience more clots. And if your clot is larger than a quarter, you should be seeing your doctor about that as well. So that's kind of the you know, boundaries to work within of postpartum periods and the the guidelines, I guess, uh, that are good to use, but it is common again for that year afterwards, which feels very long sometimes that they are heavier. Mm -hmm. And as well, it depends for people that might be breastfeeding too. It could be a year from when you stop breastfeeding for your periods to regulate back out. Yeah. Mine are all over the place. It's like the cycle will be long, then it'll be short, but they're always heavy. They always send me into a terrible mood. I talked about this not long ago, but just like, you know, worse rage than I've ever experienced. Anyhow, next question. Why do some women get bad period poops? Is this a thing and why does it happen? Yes, this is a thing. So we have a hormone that gets released during our period called prostaglandins. And this happens in every- Big pregnancy hormone. Yeah. Yes. Um, which is why there's also pregnancy poops, <laughs> <laughs> but prostaglandins are really inflammatory. So we need them during our period because it helps our uterus spasm, which is literally what releases our lining, but it's not like our brain just sends them to our uterus. They go to the surrounding areas, like in our bowels, that inflammation can cause contractions, which is why some people will get diarrhea or just extra stinky poops and parts <laughs> that happen because our bowels are just spasming very irregularly during that. that week. Um, it's also what's responsible for like some people listening are going to know what I'm talking about. Like that stabbing butthole pain that we sometimes can get around <laughs> our periods, uh, which is also from that inflammation, which can like press on our nerves and and cause some booty pain. (laughs) Damn this prostaglandin. No fun at all. I know. Right. All right. uh, Next question. Is drinking bone broth before your cycle begins actually beneficial? So it's... I've never heard of this. Yeah. So anything nutrition wise, when it comes to periods, there's a lot of things that we consider, right. That we're like, Oh, in different cultures as well. Mm. This might be helpful. This might not. Some of the concepts behind drinking bone broth is that it contains a lot of those good nutrients. Um, and we're thinking like with our periods, we're depleted of a lot of nutrients during that week, right? Anything within our blood, iron, magnesium, all of these things. So there are thoughts in general that supporting your body with things like bone broth or um, probiotics, potentially could be beneficial. Um, it's not going to necessarily make or break how you feel, but even if it's placebo at that, if you find that you feel you have more energy and feel better during your period from drinking bone broth ahead of time, that's not harming anyone. Yeah. No, that's awesome. And nutrition is always an important thing. If you could give your body more vitamins and nutrients and stuff that you need, especially when you're postpartum, especially when you're menstruating so good. And I mean, Mm -hmm. I, I eat healthfully, but I don't, I don't know that I'm always getting enough nutrients in, in what I need. And I think mm-hmm. that it probably wrecks havoc on some things that I could otherwise be feeling good with. Next, does getting your period young mean that menopause will also come early? No, not necessarily. There's okay. no correlation there. Um, there's no way to predict when menopause or perimenopause is going to hit. Again, there's such a lack of research into like menstruality and menopause in general, but we do 
think we being like the menstrual world, that there's some genetic linkage that is likely, right? It's the same with Mm. people with really heavy periods. A lot of people are like, oh, my mom had really bad periods. And it's similar. We're finding with menopause where Mm -hmm. if your, you know, mom or grandma hit it a little bit earlier, you might as well, but it doesn't depend on when you got your period. Um, cause the menstruating years can really, really range for people, right? Like I know some people that unfortunately hit menopause in like their thirties, which is very uncommon. Like I, like, I feel like I'm ready for it a little bit. (sighs) It's not ideal because it is, it can be depleting of nutrients, right. Which can play into like potential other cancer Mm -hmm. risk factors. So Mm -hmm. ideally we would like it to happen later in life. Okay. All right. Um, But there's ways to manage it if it sneaks up on (laughs) you. So Victoria, I'm going to leave it at that, but truly you are such a pro, you know what you're talking about. I, I totally appreciate all the knowledge you came here today with and I love that uh, conversation about things that we know so much about, we hear about all the time, stuff that's marketed towards us every freaking day since we're, you know, 12 years old, and yet still be such a mystery or just not know enough about it and how it can impact us and the options. The options are something that blows my mind. But thank you for sitting here and explaining everything to me and just having this conversation. I really appreciate it. And where can listeners go to check you out? Because you are such an amazing resource. Thank you. Um, I'm on Instagram at the elephant in the womb. That's womb with a W. Um, and I'm on TikTok at Vic sauce. Vic sauce. I like it. De- departure from elephant in the womb, but I like it. Yeah. But Victoria, truly, thank you so much for everything today and being, you know, second time guest. We love that. Yes. Thank you so much. <laughs> Take care. Nice seeing you again. All right. Bye. Bye. You did it, Alex. And who, who do we have next? A divorce lawyer. Yeah, Ooh. Aisha Hussein. I don't think we'll be needing to use her, but maybe some people out there may. Well, I got her number in my back pocket. All right. I got it in my front, <laughs> the way you've been acting lately. <laughs> All right. Before we get to this interview, let's tell everyone who we are supported by. We are supported by Seedlip, the world's first distilled non-alcoholic spirit. And best. And best. Seedlip's crafted without alcohol, sugar, or calories and solves the dilemma of what to drink when you're not drinking, whether it's for the night, the month, or forever. And the dilemma of what to drink when you've been at a cottage for two weeks and want anything but alcohol, (laughs) but still want that relaxing sensation. And as a non-drinker, you know, it never feels great when the only options are water, soda, or sugary mocktails. But now with Seedlip, you can skip the booze without feeling left out when it comes to your social life, even if your social life is you and your partner sitting on the couch recording a podcast on a Saturday night. I hang out with my in-laws too. (laughs) So whether you prefer punchy citrus flavors, aromatic spices, or savory herbs. Sorry, that was funny, Shane. Seedlip offers drink for every drinker. It's crafted using bespoke process, including traditional copper distillation of botanicals. And each of Seedlip's three variants, which are Spice 94, Garden 108, and Grow 42, are alcohol-free and have their own unique flavors, which pair so perfectly with just a splash of tonic. They can also be used to make more complex cocktails like Shane and I typically like to do. And you'll find those in the Seedlip cocktail book or on their Instagram account at Seedlip underscore N-A. So head on over to seedlipdrinks.com or .ca and use the promo code ThisFamilyTree10 for 10% off your favorite non-alcoholic spirit. This is available in Canada and in the U.S. And again, that is seedlipdrinks.com and ThisFamilyTree10. And now let's get to our interview with Aisha Hussein. Well, Aisha Hussein, welcome to This Family Tree podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. We are quite excited. And specifically about this topic, because as I said, I have zero 
zero expertise in this, zero, not even expertise, zero knowledge. And, you know, it's something you never want to think about. I never want to have to think about going in this direction. However, if I am ever caught in this space, I don't want to be knocked on my ass and not know anything that's going on. So you are, you're a family and divorce lawyer. Yes. And thank you very much for having me on your podcast. I'm actually, I'm very excited and I look forward uh, to it. Yes, I am a family and uh, I'm a lot of people say family and divorce lawyer, but my, it is family law and child protection. That's what my practice concentrates on. Okay. And, and child protection is that, I, is that in, if a child is getting taken away from the home, like what is child protection? Yes, child protection is when um, you have like the Children Aid Society involved and they might be removing the child from the home or they might be just involved with the family and they've brought an application in court because they feel that maybe the child is perhaps in danger. Then the parents retain counsel and I'm the type of counsel they will retain to basically advocate with them, advocate for them in court. Mm -hmm. And how did you get into this type of law? Because I feel like it's not for the faint of heart because you're going to be around so many uh, just heart-wrenching and really sad situations. You know, it's uh, it's funny. I actually really enjoy it. It is very... Family law itself, and I think, and, and child protection, it takes a lot of... You need to be able to separate emotion from work because you are dealing with families on a consistent basis. And you know what? Families don't stop. You know, you don't have a weekend where the family stops and and you don't have any holidays where the families stop. And every family is different. Every family makeup is different. What works for one family is not necessarily working for the other. And we're living in a time right now where really the, the word family has really morphed. It is, you know, you have all sorts of makeups of what can can be what can be constituted as a family. I love what I do. Mm -hmm. How I got into it, I think it was just honestly a fluke. Uh, (laughs) After getting called to the bar, I articled and I just fell in love with family law and I never looked back. And uh, and I think that's what it is. I think a lot of lawyers, when you talk to them, how they got into uh, the practice, some of them started doing something they didn't enjoy and you know it was it wasn't the right fit I'm very fortunate that I started off with family law and I just I, I I'm, I'm still doing it mm-hmm. well, my mother actually at the beginning she's a teacher now so in something totally different but at the beginning of her career she worked for a London Ontario lawyer uh, named Tom Granger do you know okay. who that is he, no, he eventually sat on the superior court as a judge and everything but so she knows a little bit about this type of law from that and kind of was helping me to prep for this interview because again you know it kind of it made me emotional thinking about questions to ask you because again it's a position that you don't necessarily unless I mean it is for the benefit of you which in most cases it is to to separate but I want to get into you know if you are finding yourself in that position now how do you know because I'm sure you've had clients who perhaps Maybe they didn't know if they were ready for a lawyer yet. Like, how do you know you're ready for a lawyer? And how do you know you're ready to take the next steps and actually get a divorce? You know, I think it's such a personal choice of that question of when are you ready? I think you always know you are ready. Mm -hmm. Um, I feel what happens a lot of times in individuals that I speak to, whether they're men or women, 
you know, at some point they they've been pushed to a point where they're like, you know what, this is no longer healthy for me. This relationship has become toxic. Sometimes a couple might, an individual might be willing to put up with the negativity and the toxicity of the relationship, but when they see it split spilling onto the children, that sometimes that's it for them. That sometimes they say that's enough for me. So really, when is it? When is time to say, okay, I'm done? I think that's a very personal choice. I think a lot of times people are hesitant to speak to lawyers because, you know, for them, for them, it's also an affirmation that, oh, my God, I'm going to be taking this step. So it could be scary. I, however, think it's always smart to speak to a lawyer, not because you want to take that step, but because if you are feeling that, you know what? At some point, I feel that this relationship is now headed for a breakdown. It's always good to know what your rights are, quote unquote, to kind of prepare yourself. And I find often in couples where, and you always have the the couples where one party had absolutely no idea, but I find most of the time in couples where there is that breaking point, the relationship has, has been facing so much friction that both parties are probably speaking to somebody, whether it's a coworker, a friend. I always say speak to a lawyer because a coworker, a friend will give you their experience. Oh, you know, this happened to me. This happened to my friend, or I've heard of this, or they'll Google it. And family law is it's it's got it's so multifaceted that really, if you read, if you Google up a, a any issue, you'll get a general overview. How that might apply to you, though, in uh, in practical uh, in the practical realm, might be totally different. Mm. And I also find sometimes when you speak to a professional, whether it's a family lawyer, whether it's a counselor or a therapist, it kind of reduces your own personal anxiety, right? Because you you have more of an understanding, and that fear of the unknown, mm-hmm. which I think always heightens any anxiety, is kind of addressed. Yeah, no, that's good. And how does one go? to find a reputable lawyer. So you're in Toronto, are you, is that correct? Yeah. Yes. So if somebody's not in Toronto and they are not going to you, Aisha, how can they find a reputable lawyer? So one thing I would, I will just step back and say the one thing this, the pandemic has done, it has really uh, allowed parties to get lawyers from every, any jurisdiction they're in. For example, I'm currently representing clients who are in London, St. Thomas, Kitchener, Niagara, because I can attend court via Zoom. And because of Zoom, I can do meetings. So the reason I'm saying that is because the best way to find a lawyer, in my opinion, and and I'll tell you how people find me, a lot of times, nine out of 10 times, clients say, I went on Google, I read your review, and I did some research. That's how most clients um, will approach a, a lawyer, I think. Uh, either that way or they have a friend who recommends counsel to them. I think these are the two best ways. What I always say to uh, individuals who are approaching me, who have maybe found me on Google, is I say, let's have a consultation. And I think what a consultation does is it kind of, it's like I always say to clients, think of it like a first date. <laughs> when you have a consultation with a lawyer, you kind of, you know, understand, okay, yeah. is, this, is this lawyer understanding what I'm looking for? Can I, because it is a relationship, you know, you you end up having a relationship with your lawyer. They need to be able to understand what you want and they need to be able to communicate with you and you need to be able to trust them and communicate with them. So I feel that how you find a lawyer is step one, but then you need to be able to see if you and that lawyer are able to gel together. 
And what kind of lawyer are you? Because when I think of lawyers, I think of the movie lawyers. You know, there's some of the kind of witty ones that are there, some of the quiet lawyers. And then there's the lawyers that are throwing the papers and banging on the judge's table. So w where do you fit into that? You know, I, I, <laughs> it's a very I, professional I, question. <laughs> I, I, you know what? I'm going to say I'm very, uh, I'm very confident to say I'm a very aggressive lawyer in court mm -hmm. because that's just my style. Um, but at the same time, I'm also um, me a mediator. So I, I, I feel how I approach personally how I approach cases is on a case by case basis. You know, there are some cases where you need to advocate aggressively and. and and then there's some cases where maybe you need to advocate from a, a more, not a tamer point, mm -hmm. but you need to advocate from a more cordial uh, sense. It really depends on the case. It also depends on your client. So I represent a lot of women, for example, who are victims of domestic violence. Mm -hmm. So these women need aggressive litigation because they need a voice for them, mm -hmm. right? So I'm aggressive. Then I represent some individuals where they're like, you know what, my partner and I, We've decided that we, you know, we've decided to end the relationship, but we're amicable. So you, you don't, you're not going to approach that from an aggressive point. You approach it from a point of view that, okay, how can we assist these parties in reaching a, a solution, a resolution that they're both happy with? So I think I am a very multifaceted type of a lawyer. I can be aggressive when the need, when the need requires it, but, I, and at the same time, I can also step back depending on what my client wants. And also you, you need to understand your op, the opposing party. So if the opposing lawyer is just as aggressive, you know, that, then you need to change the way you, you change your tune. I know a lot of people, they look at law and order and suits and they think, you know, that's maybe how we carry on the profession or, you know, how to get away with murder. I'll tell you, it's, it's honestly, it's, it's wonderful. I, it's very glamorized. When I saw how to get away with murder, the only thing that kept going through my head was law society complaint, law society complaint, law society complaint. You know, I, I, I wish we could do things that way. You don't. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, but I think really, if you want to know which law is going to be a good fit for you, when you do decide to um, retain counsel, go for the consultation. And, you know, I will say this in a lot of times people are looking for because I understand it's an expensive process and they'll say, oh, um, do you do free consultations? And uh, I'll tell you, I personally do not do free consultations for a few reasons. Number one, you know, if you really want to get to know the lawyer, you need time with them. And I don't believe in 10, 15 minutes because I don't believe you get to understand the other, the, your client's case in 10, 15 minutes. And I feel like the client feels that they're in a rush. So I, I would say to you, look, it might cost a bit of money, but if you need to spend that dollar to understand if you've got the right lawyer for you, do it. It, you know, it, it can go a long way. And sometimes, you know, clients come to me and they're like ready for a fight. They're like, you know what? I want this. I want that. I want this. And then after I hear them and I and then I ask them questions about the other side, I'll say to them, well, you know what? Maybe we don't need to go that route. Maybe we can first start off going this way in a more, you know, I approach them and see if if maybe we can reach a resolution in a more amicable approach. So really, I think after you have. It really, after you speak to a lawyer and you've explained your case, a lawyer should be able to give you different ways to approach your matter. There's always the aggressive way. Let's go to court. But I think before you go to court, and I think this is where 
the this is where even the legislation is now leaning towards. You always try to approach the other side to see maybe there is an amicable, more, uh, you know, a more uh, amicable way to resolve the matter rather than just rush to court. And, you know, you mentioned how during quarantine, it really widened the amount of people that you were able to reach because of Zoom and the accessibility that comes with that. But during the pandemic, uh, did you find that because I've read different studies from all over the world, different countries, divorce rates did increase. Did you notice that at your practice? You know, I think I think there has been a fallout during the pandemic, definitely in the relationships. And, and you know, I will say this much because, yes, you always read that there is a rise in number of divorces. But you have to keep in mind during the first lockdown that happened. So from March until December, you could say, really, the courts were trying to understand how to navigate in this new norm, if I may say. So, you know, maybe there is a backlog of cases that are now coming up. I've also heard had cases where I've had parties call me, clients call me and say, you know what, during the pandemic, we kind of figured it out. We kind of understood because they couldn't run to court and they had to cooperate with each other. So, and you don't hear about that as much, but I just want to say that to your viewers because, you know, I don't believe in being negative all the time. You know, really, I find that human beings are very adaptable and really, it, it comes out to how you approach a situation. Mm-hmm. I found that in the pandemic, yes, things did increase. I think parties, there were situations where no doubt domestic violence increased, no doubt child abuse increased, unfortunately, you know, and there were a lot of individuals that were forced to live in a situation that was damaging to them. And I think once the lockdown uh, was resolved or opened up, you know, people fled because they're like, I can't do this anymore. Mm-hmm. But I think that it's like a pressure cooker. That situation was always there. And I think the pandemic just only increased it. And, you know, I also find that there's some situations where you had two parties that were just, you know, were not able to get along with each other. And then during the pandemic, they had to help each other out. And, you know, a lot of people, I think if you are one of those individuals that have parents or have family to uh, that can assist you, you're blessed. Mm-hmm. If you don't, then you know what, sometimes, you, you know, the parent, the other parent is your best friend, whether you like them or not, because you both have one thing in common, which is looking out for the best interest of your child. So I mean, I think it has brought out two different types of scenarios. But definitely, I think I'm now feeling that yes, a lot of people are saying that, you know what, I, 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 I can't live with this individual. And I also think what the pandemic did was for everybody, um, whether you're married or single or whatever your situation is, you kind of appreciated time. Yeah. Like, you know, <laughs> we, you, you know, you don't know what tomorrow will bring. Absolutely. Right. So, Absolutely. so a lot of people. So I think that's what also has, in my opinion, has yeah. kind of, you know, no, and I, I see both sides of that, even just from my relationship, because Shane, my husband, he was commuting every single day to Toronto. So for the first year of our first daughter's life, he only saw her on the weekends because he was gone before she woke up and he'd come home after she went to sleep. And that was very difficult for him. And then in the pandemic, we're both living together. I was pregnant for the first six months and then I gave birth and we had a newborn and we run a business together. So that is a lot of getting in each other's hair. And I think we ran into situations where it's like, oh, my God, this is what you're like to work with. This is what you're like to be with every day. But then at the same time, 
we find tools to deal with that and we find ways to manage each other and then we have a better insight into how the other person operates day to day and what they need to operate operate in a in a in a pleasant way you know and in a cooperative way and then and for us uh it ultimately was great for us and i know that we are in possibly a minority or i'm not sure but it it really was great for us you know on the large part but I do want to talk about kids because we in our emails back and forth, we talked about mitigating the, you know, the emotional damaging effects that divorce can have on children. So if you're getting a divorce, so I, I'm going to put myself in this position. I'm getting a divorce with Shane. How do I go about talking to my kids? How do you how do you tell your kids about this? So it's a very interesting question. And really, it depends on the age of the child. And I find that, you know, children, uh, from every age get impacted. And I think the the first thing I say to all my clients is, look, you're getting divorced. We get that. You need to first think, before you even speak to your children, I think you need to manage your own emotions. You know, I think, and it's very easy to say, but you need to, in my personal opinion, kind of address the fact that, okay, fine. I don't, maybe you don't like your other part, maybe you don't like the partner, and you're like, you know what, I don't like what they did to me. But at some point, you need to you need to come to terms with that. And I think coming to terms is a very big step mm-hmm. that often people are not advised of. And they and it just it, it just lingers on. You know, I tell my clients, don't jump into another relationship. First, deal with your emotions. And when you speak to your children, you know, depending. So if a child is young, say you're dealing with a toddler to a three or four year old, you know, Rather than some, and I've had parties do this, rather than say to them that, you know what, mommy, daddy and I, or mommy and I, or my, you know, or however you label the other parent are separating. Maybe you say, you know what, we are going to start a new, uh, we're going to, maybe you make it like a game that, you know what, you're going to be with mommy today, and then you're going to be with daddy. And, you know, it really depends on, and, and, and you have to understand and you have to accept no matter how you put it towards the child, it's going to be hard. Mm-hmm. It's going to be very, very difficult. So the more you and your partner are able to show a united front, the easier it is for a child. Sometimes what parties do is that they don't even say that they've separated. They might say, daddy's gone on, mommy's gone on a trip or daddy's gone on a trip, right? And they will be back. And then, you know, and then mommy's gone on a trip and mm-hmm. she will be back to kind of adjust the child. I don't think a young child should just, you should just sit them down and tell them mm-hmm. bluntly what's going on. You have to slowly get them used to the idea. And maybe, you know, maybe, and if, and I think if you're able to, and I say this understanding that not every situation is at that stage when they're able to sit down and talk to the children together. But in an ideal situation, if you and your partner can sit down and say to the child, your child together, you know what? mommy and daddy, and we've decided that, you know what, we're going to live in two different homes. That means you have two different toys. And, you know, obviously a child's going to wonder why. Mm -hmm. So, you know, these are tough questions. And I think the best way to answer them is if you and your partner both have a united front and both have the same answers, because it makes the child feel safe. and, Mm -hmm. And you know what, Every child is different, right? There's some children who are very sensitive and, you know, they might feel like it's my fault or is it because I did this or, you know, so 
it's it really depends on the age of the child now if you have a child in who is like in the age of 7 to 12 age you know i think it's very hard uh, to keep them out of the reality because you know they're, they're not they, they they have they have a better sense of what's going on again i think you need to sit down be honest with them tell them that you know what nothing is going to change keep things as regular and normalized for them as possible by that i mean don't change their school don't change their activity you know try to get a schedule and maybe uh, maybe involve the children in the schedule and say you know what you're going to be with mommy on the week on this week one and maybe make a calendar so they can see it um i find that you know the more children know what's coming up i mean the the easier the transition is for them and transition is different difficult for you know every child i have a lot of clients whose par- whose children are on the autism spectrum for example and you know what transitioning from one house to another is very very challenging uh, yeah. i think what parents need to do is every parent understands their child and if you have more than one child like you're saying you just had a newborn yeah. right congratulations Thank on you. that <laughs> but when you have two children you might feel like your one child is a completely different personality than the other one mm-hmm. so i feel like the best way to address the separation issue is to understand how your child is keep things normal have a united front and maybe discuss it with your partner if you can that look this is how we should put it down this is how we should maybe speak to our child mm-hmm. don't fight in front of the children it doesn't matter what age group it is i find that you know when parents and it often happens there's a fight during the exchanges you know a parent is late and the other parent blames them and i feel what happens is that when the exchanges are toxic that toxicity carries on during the visit as well because sometimes children feel guilty you know D- don't don't tell the child that oh you know when you come back i'm going to show you this mm-hmm. or we're going to do this when you come back because then that child remains in that feeling so try to make things as easy for them as possible when you have children in high school you know it's a different age it's an adolescence age i think i hate saying it that in a way it's a good thing that um there are a lot of single parents out there but because there are a lot of single parents out there a child might not feel like you know they are an outcast but again it depends how parents address the issue don't go to their school and fight i can't tell you how many times parents do that and they they completely don't understand when you have a child who's 12 and up it's all about you know this child is developing into their own character so you know you really have to address it and there're lots of for this i will say there if you google divorce and different ages a lot of very helpful literature out there on how to approach the situation but in my opinion to summarize it you have to communicate with the child you have to show a united front don't have conflicts in front of the child and deal with your own emotions mm-hmm. i think if you can overcome your emotions to a certain point that you and the other person can at least do an exchange without getting in each other's face i think that in itself will really help the child um adjust to their new norm. And you know, thinking about this and just raising children amidst uh, a setting of conflict and trying to do that in the healthiest way possible. I you mentioned earlier about dating, don't bring somebody new into the picture right away. And 
I was reading recently about how sexual and physical abuse goes up when there are more partners coming into the, the picture more quickly. And then I also think I, I know a woman, a friend of mine, and she was in a relationship with a man. Uh, and it turned out that he wasn't even divorced from his wife yet. They were merely separated and they had two children. And if you can address that, because, of course, I have my own opinions on that just from a friend standpoint and like, what the hell is this guy doing standpoint? And if that was ever my husband, if we were separated, divorced, I'd be getting charged for murder because I'd kill him in that situation, you know, you know, exposing my daughters to other people so soon. But your professional opinion on that and why it can be harmful. So you know what? And this is why I say in family law, everything kind of overlaps. So the reason I said do not jump into a new relationship and do not introduce a, a new partner to your children immediately is because, look, you've been in a marriage, for example, or you've been in a relationship with somebody for, I'm going to say two years. Okay, I'm not going to even say more than I'm not going to even say a long time. Now, all of a sudden, the relationship has ended. How the relationship ends, you know, emotions are still there. The children need to adjust to the new realities. The parties need to adjust to a new reality. You know, you're no longer going to family events as a couple. You know, you're trying to figure out how you are going to rebuild your life. Mm -hmm. Now, if you jump into a new relationship, the reason I tell my clients, it's not a legal thing. It's more of a, you know, a, it's a therapeutic thing. Mm -hmm. If you jump into a new relationship, you can't resolve the your own emotions from your previous relationship. So you need to resolve that so you can have a healthy relationship, right? And also for your children, think about it. For a child, it doesn't matter. You know, we always say this in family law. One could be a really bad, uh, a really um, toxic partner. So even if they're a toxic partner, they might be a wonderful parent, you know, now you're asking a child, doesn't matter what their age is, to see you with a new person. And, and and if that child has not adjusted yet to their new reality, that child might have unresolved feelings, which can impact their own personal relationships in the future. So, I mean, and as you said, look, unfortunately, you have these, you have websites like Ashley Madison, where people... You know, you don't even need to be divorced. Listen, we're, we're living in an environment, in a society where because of all the, you know, chat groups that are available, dating sites that are available, people don't disclose their uh, reality, their, you know, their, their real status. And sometimes people don't care, you know. So but I always say to my clients, look, you are responsible for your situation and your and your children. You can't expect the new person to care about them. Mm -hmm. This is your responsibility. Don't introduce a new person. I'm not saying don't date. If you want to date somebody, go ahead, date them. But be very mindful of the fact that if you bring in somebody into your child's life too soon without first coming to terms with your previous partner and being on good terms with your ex-partner, all it's going to do is toxify the situation for your child. And I think everything, and I, I would say this to anyone who's listening, whenever you're thinking, should I do this or should I not do this? Always think about how will this impact my child? And I think you will come to an answer, a responsible answer of how to do it. Mm -hmm. that, that's how I see it. But I know what you mean. Unfortunately, 
I can't tell you how many times I have had clients tell me they met someone online. Right. And that person didn't tell them they were already married and they already have so many children. And then they ended up getting pregnant. And then that person's like, please go for an abortion. And the person's like, why should I? I, I want this child. And then they find out everything and they feel devastated. So how do you deal with that? Well, you know what? Don't, you got to be very mindful. Look, you're meeting somebody online. You know, you, you got to meet them. You got to really get to understand who they are before you jump into a more permanent type of a relationship with them. All right, Aisha, we're going to take a quick break and let our listeners know who we're supported by. We are supported by Mabel's Labels. Frustrated by their children's things getting lost, mixed up, and leaving home never to return, Julie Cole and three other mom friends knew they could do better than just scribbling their kids' names on some masking tape. Mabel's Labels has grown into an award-winning, market-leading company loved by moms and dads and kids and grandparents and caregivers of all kinds alike. And if you're going through a divorce, you're going to want to make sure your stuff is labeled. Ooh, very relatable, Shane. I like that. Uh, Lucy loves them because, you know, some of her labels are in the shape of hearts. They have hedgehogs on them, cherries and rainbows, all things that she likes. And she can co-create them with me online to actually take some initiative and responsibility for her own things, which, you know, Shane and I love in turn. Plus, their line of products features baby bottle labels, allergy and medical alert products, sports labels, household labels, and seasonal items. And everything is so durable. I'm talking laundry, dishwasher, microwave safe, and it's all 100% guaranteed. So head on over to mableslabels.ca to start creating your very own labels and use the promo code thisfamilytree15 for 15% off your order. They deliver internationally and they offer free standard shipping in Canada and in the US. Again, that is mableslabels.ca and thisfamilytree15. But we are also supported by Bravado Designs. Bravado Designs makes the best bras that you can get your hands on. What about you, Shane? What? That's not a segue. <laughs> yes, they do. They do. I first got introduced to Bravado Designs when I was nursing Lucy. So this is like three years ago, over three years ago now. And at this point, they just had nursing bras, which were the best. And I'm talking the easiest to use, most comfortable nursing bras that I could wear. And I didn't even wear a shirt at this point because my nipples were so raw and chapped. And the only thing that felt good really was my Bravado Designs bra. We had some very awkward trips to the convenience store during this pregnancy. <laughs> But Bravado Designs has now come out with their everyday collection. So these are bras that don't have clips. They are for anybody who wants to wear them. You don't need to be a nursing mother. And now I can wear Bravado Designs, you know, as I go forward in my motherhood journey. It's awesome. I got my mom onto them. Some of my friends, they don't have kids. Some do have kids. Some of their kids are 15 years old. Essentially, everybody in my life is now wearing Bravado Designs. And it's all essentially thanks to Shane. Who picked up the bra for me in the first place? What's the discount code, Alex? So you can get the nursing bras at bravadodesigns.com or you can head to the Canadian website for access to the everyday collection at ca.bravadodesigns.com. But regardless of which website you go to, use the promo code thisfamilytree20 and you're going to get 20% off your whole order. Again, that is bravadodesigns.com and thisfamilytree20. And now let's get to our interview with Aisha. And you know, Okay, so I, I'm a very jealous woman anyway, as it is. And if... I think of situations in which there's already a third person in the relationship, like if one of the spouses or one of the partners is cheating and having an affair, and then there's already some person that is involved with your spouse. So if Shane was involved with somebody, right, and then, you know, we're getting a divorce, am I able to, and this is probably a silly question, but like, would I be able to as, uh, you know, the parent who has been wronged, for lack of a better term, 
be able to create a stipulation saying, well, this person who, you know, came inside of my marriage, can they not get introduced to my children for this amount of time? Do you know what I mean? Like, is there is there any protection there for the parent who gets cheated on? Unfortunately, I don't think the word I'm going to use is protection. But what we do do sometimes in is when we make agreements, we'll say that before one parent introduces a new partner to the child, they will apprise the other um, the other party okay. that uh, that they're in a more permanent relationship, um, and that's so the child doesn't get um, shocked because because you know what you what you want to avoid is to introduce a new partner to your child and then the child runs back and tells the other person and then all that does is it adds to the anxiety and the unknown but i will say to you look when two people separate the whole idea is that they want to start leading an independent life and yes a lot of times people separate because you know what there was a third person that was brought into the relationship and you know and and yes you know the person who was wronged as you're saying might have unresolved feelings might mm-hmm. have anger might feel like how dare you mm-hmm. you know and i but i think for from for the child's perspective in terms of can you dictate whether this new person can be around the child or not unfortunately you can't because mm-hmm. what the law says is that your parenting time with your child is your parenting time the other parent cannot impede on it it cannot dictate what you can and cannot do so again i would say that if that happens to anybody and it happens a lot it's very common unfortunately that you know what a third person or the, or suddenly someone's in a relationship with someone like you know within a within a week and you're like oh my god like every <laughs> You know, like this person's introducing, and it happens, yeah. this person's introducing a stranger to my child every week. It's a different person. I've had scenarios where the child has walked in on the parent with somebody else. And, you know, so so really, I, I would say, rather than blast the other individual, and I mean, I, look, I'm saying this, it's very difficult to do. I get <laughs> yeah. that. I would say to you, try to approach it in a mature way and say, listen, I want to work with you here. If you're in a relationship, just tell me. I don't need to know who the person is. I don't need to see the individual, but I need to know so our child doesn't get shocked. And I know it's very easy for me to say because the other person can say, yeah, okay, whatever. You know, you're just you're just jealous, as you said, you know, mm-hmm. or you just want to know what's happening in my life, or you're just keeping tabs on me. So, but as I say, you are responsible for yourself. And of course, if this child is being introduced. To, so, for example, I'm going to just quickly touch on one an issue you said, because I think it's very important. You know, unfortunately, there are occasions where children do get sexually interfered with by maybe a new partner and the parent is not aware of what's going on. Or the parent is weak in the sense that, you know what, this relationship is so important to them that they're ignoring what the child is saying. I would say to you as the other parent, I'm not going to say call the Children Aid Society as soon as you get, as soon as, you know, your child discloses something to you. But if you see a change in the pattern of your child's behavior, mm-hmm. you know, you can always contact, first address it with the parent directly. And then if necessary, you can always contact the Children Aid Society. Mm-hmm. And I'm only saying that because I have seen situations where, one parent and they and that parent obviously then ends up feeling guilty because they're like 
I had no idea. And it doesn't have to be the partner. It doesn't have to be their new partner. Maybe that new partner has an adult child. So, you know, you don't. So I would say to you, that's why I, I say that, look, it starts right from the first stage. You're breaking up with your partner. It's a very tough situation to be in. There are lots of emotions, but you have to come to a point where you and your the, your ex can at least have a communication because, yes, your child is going to leave your house, is going to leave your site, and when they leave, you have no control where they're going. So there has to be that enough trust that the other parent will not put them in a dangerous situation. Mm-hmm. And I think that would be a very difficult uh, place for me to find myself in as well because, you know, I, I find a lot of mothers in my community, maternal gatekeeping is something we talk about a lot. And that is where you take on all the maternal tasks because you trust yourself more than anybody else, you know. So in that situation, you know, it's not even maternal gatekeeping within the same house. You are sending your child off to live and to sleep elsewhere. And I, I think that is a big, uh, a big fear of a lot of people. And I know it would be a fear of mine. And you know, you mentioned that when you are divorced or separated from your partner, your child is has your, their parenting time with that parent. And then when they go to you, that's your parenting time. And you can't infringe really on that time. So that drives me to another question, co-parenting. Like, are there different co-parenting structures? How do you know, uh, how do you know how to navigate that and find out what works best for you and your partner? So, okay, that's a very good question, actually. So co-parenting structures really depend on your relationship with your ex. So, for example, you have some parties, they have separated, but they live close by to each other. They live within, they live within the same neighborhood maybe 10, 15 minutes away, right? Maybe the children are at an age where the children are old enough where they can spend one week with one parent, the other week with the other parent. So that's a week on, week off type of co-parenting, right? There are some parenting styles where they say, you know, what the child, it's called a 2255. So two days with mom, two days with dad, and then five days with mom, five days with dad, right? So they're different, and you can Google, they're different parenting structures. I I think really the best way is for the parents to figure out how the child adjusts. There's, and also look, if you're working, so you know, you and you and your partner, you're both working together, you have a business together. There's some there, there's some parties where you know what, one parent has shift work. So week one looks completely different than week two looks. So I always say give your work schedule, and then you can devise a parenting uh, regime according to that schedule. The younger the child, the more frequent the contact should be, only because that establishes the relationship. So if you're having parents separating where they're only dealing with infants, it's not the quant- it's not the quantity, it's the quality of the visits that matter, and it's not the, the frequency, it's not the um, duration, it's the frequency that matters. So if your child is from a newborn to, I would say, one, one and a half years, you know, it's it's how many times they see the other parent because that's how, you know, children get to recognize the smell, the touch, the parenting style. As the children get older, so say, for example, they're in school, then maybe you say, okay, fine, uh, Monday to Wednesday, my son will be with me or my daughter will be with me. Wednesday to Friday, they'll be with you and then we'll rotate weekends. And then the pickup and drop-off can be at school. 
which, you know, it will prevent the parents from seeing each other and in, in any interaction. It's a safe place for the child. It could be that as well. So really your co-parenting style really is dictated by the way your relationship is with your partner. And I will say this to parents who are listening to this, you know, be easy on yourself. Really, it's like, it really is going to be a process, right? When you first separate, it will take you time to understand how to co-parent with the other partner, because now, you know, it's a different style. It's a different type of a relationship you have with them now, right? And and, and be easy on, and, and give yourself time. You know, a lot of times people are just like, oh, it's just going to be like this. And it's funny. I meet some clients when we first start a, a case. And then in six months, within six months, things have changed. You know, the parties have changed. The, the, maybe, the, you know, the emotions have calmed down a bit. You know, so if really you, you've got to be, uh, you got to let yourself come to that point where you can. Now, say, for example, you and your partner live a, a relative distance apart. Or say, for example, what has happened a lot in this pandemic is that one party has moved out of the city, Right. So what do you do then? Maybe you and your partner come to an understanding that, okay, fine, we'll meet halfway, right? So maybe, you know, we'll, we'll meet halfway. And because the child goes to a school in one catchment that is not in the other parent's catchment, you say, okay, fine, you can have the child. I have, I'll give you a case, for example. I have one client, they just moved um, to Maberly, which is like three, to, I think four hours away from Toronto or something. So my, the mother said, you know what, you can have the child every weekend and I will do the driving. I will meet you halfway because she's the one who's moving. So she said, I will meet you halfway and you can have the child from Friday to Sunday. Plus you can have them on the long weekends. And, and so they've worked out a schedule and the other party said, fine, that's hard for me, but I'll do it. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I, and I, and this party was completely different when the case first started. So really I say, that's why I say, give yourself the opportunity to grow mm -hmm. because you will grow because as you first said, you know, when we first started this, uh, this particular topic, it's a matter of trust. It will take you time to trust your partner. It will take you time to understand whether they can take care of your child or not. And you know what, you've got to give the opportunity to the other partner as well. Uh, you know, yes. A lot of times mothers, they are, and I hate the word gatekeepers because it just makes it seem so oppositional. But, you know, I find that mothers sometimes are the protective ones because even today, you know, it is the mother that is the one who's responsible for taking, looking after the child. Mm -hmm. I will say this as well. Kudos to fathers out there who are the ones, because I have, I see a lot of fathers who are saying, you know what, during our relationship, I was the one who was, you know, looking after the child because if if you have a couple where there's shift work, maybe mom works at night, dad works during the day. So both of them have really taken care of the child on an equal basis, but taking care of the child's different needs. So you know what? Like I would say, you know, give your partner some credit. Now, if you have a case where there is domestic violence, where there's no trust between the parties, then you know what? The parenting schedule is the co-parenting might not start immediately. Mm -hmm. And maybe, and there are some cases where there is no such thing as co-parenting because in order for there to be co-parenting, there needs to be respect. You need to respect the other parent. And if you can't respect them, you really need to, you know, you, you really need to work on yourself mm -hmm. 
to get there if co-parenting is what you want. And, you know, you, you said with the one parent that was moving four hours away, right? And if it's, it changes case to case, but if there are two parents and they don't, they don't want that and they're not at a place of saying, okay, you move here and we can work and make something together, like we can co-create some kind of schedule, are there laws to protect the child from having to go from, you know, one area to somewhere very far away? Like, is there a standard amount of kilometers that they can't surpass or anything like that? Absolutely. So a lot of times, and I mean, this is how sometimes litigation start. One parent unilaterally changes the child's jurisdiction, which hinders the other parent's ability to see them. So absolutely, you can, number one, if one parent just unilaterally moves without advising the other parent, you can go to court immediately. And the court will say, look, you know, a child, it's its the child's right. It, you know, and I'm saying that because a lot of times people don't understand that having a relationship with both parents is a child's right. And if you are unilaterally removing the child to a different jurisdiction, which hinders their ability to have a relationship with the other parent, you're impeding on their right. And the other parent who's in the old jurisdiction can definitely go to court for relief. Sometimes parents are start off in the same jurisdiction and the other parent says, look, I have a job opportunity that's going to require me or I can no longer live in the city. You're going to hear that a lot. The city is getting too expensive. I can't live in the city. I need to move apart, far apart. Well, that's fine. Work out a parenting schedule that the other parent is satisfied with. Mm -hmm. So if, it, if that does not happen, you can go to court and the court could say to the parent that would, desires to move that you don't move. You have to stay in this area because, you know, you can't remove this child away to a certain point where they their relationship will get fractured with their parent. Mm -hmm. So can you put. Just to touch on the fact, can you put in how many kilometers? Absolutely. Sometimes in agreements, you say that one party cannot move more than 15 kilometers away, one, you know, or move more than 20 kilometers away. You, you, you can put these enforcements in there. Court orders sometimes you put in there that neither party can change, unilaterally change jurisdiction of the child mm -hmm. without the consent of the other party or a court order. And I always say written consent. Don't, uh, you know, don't. <laughs> uh, and, and because no, because sometimes there's trust, right? You mm -hmm. can say, well, I'm thinking of moving the other person. Like, okay, fine. Without understanding what the, what the other party is really saying. So yes, absolutely. You can put in, there are different things you can put in place to make sure that, you know, the jurisdiction is not changed of the child. And in the event that the parties do decide that, yes, fine, you can move, no problem. There are different things that can be put into place to make sure that the party that is moving makes, you know, takes the steps necessary to have, you know, to make sure that the other parent has a relationship with the child. Okay. And my, I, one other thing, and this is so like, I guess one of the biggest things in, you know, a divorce situation, but is there always child support or when does child support come into play? And what is what does basic child support look like? Like what should basic child support cover? Completely different topic oh, yeah. and a, a very contentious one. So oh, no. <laughs> See, this is how child, little my understanding is. <laughs> so child support and a lot of times people uh, and the reason I think it's a different topic is because I want your listeners to understand in family law. The way uh, parenting time is completely different than child support. And a lot of times you have parties that kind of convolute the two issues, completely different issues. You could have a, you could have a party that is not paying child support, but still 
saying, I want to see the child. And the law will say, yes, they have a right to see the child. So don't don't think that if one party is not paying child support, they should not see the child. Okay. so how is child support determined to make it as basic as possible? If one parent. So say I'm going to use you and Shane as an example, because you've used that you've used yourself as an example. And your part, your listeners might be able to, you know, Absolutely, kind of. Yeah. Uh, uh, <laughs> That's good. That. It's a good role play. So say, for example, God forbid, if you and Shane were to split up mm-hmm. and you're, and I'm sorry, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't catch you have the daughter or. Is, uh, we have, we have uh, two daughters, Lucy and Betty. Yeah. Okay. So say, for example, Lucy and Betty were living with you and Shane was seeing, you know, Lucy and Betty, uh, you know, once a week and then on alternate weekends. Shane would be responsible to pay child support based on his income. Now, income is different depending on two things. Either you have a T4 employee, meaning someone who is employed and works for somebody, or they're self-employed. So really how child support is determined is based on the person's income. The easiest scenario is if someone is a T4 employee working for somebody. There is a chart on the web. Um, if you if you Google Ontario Child Support Guidelines, it will pop up. And um, say someone who's earning minimum wage, which is around about twenty nine thousand, they would be paying for one child two hundred and fifty dollars, for example. Okay, so that's how. And I'm being very basic on how child support is determined. Okay, that's your basics of it. And I will just throw in there. I'm not giving any legal advice right now. No, okay? no. So I don't want anyone to say, oh, my God, this is what I heard. So this is not legal advice. I'm just giving you the basic, yeah. you know, one on one understanding. Understanding. Say, for example, because you said you and Shane have your business, then child support is still based on income. But because you have a business expense and you have a self-employment, you have a self-employed income, your lawyer will kind of decipher what the child support should be based on what the true income is. But child support is based on income. That's what child support is based on. Also, child support varies depending on different living arrangements. So say, for example, now you and Shane had an arrangement where your daughters are with you on one week and we're there with Shane on the second week. So you have a split arrangement. So then child support is no longer going to be exactly like the guidelines. Mm-hmm. It will be calculated based on both of your incomes and the amount of time. So if it's 50-50, so say your his income is 60000 yours is 30000 he will have to pay child support, but it won't be the same amount of child support. It will be slightly less. Say, for example, mobility. So say, for example, one child lives in a different jurisdiction. So say one child lives, say the child, one party's decided to relocate to Ottawa. And the parent said, okay, fine. But now they have to travel to Ottawa to see the child. So sometimes in some some agreements, this is taken into consideration. Because, you know, there's a travel expense, right? uh, that, That burdens the parent that has to do the traveling. Also in child support, you look at something that is called a section seven expense. So section seven expenses are over and above expenses for children, and they can include tutoring. So say, for example, your child um, needs tutoring. Um, I'm going to say Kumon, right? That uh, that could be a section seven expense. If if, If a parent has a child who has a special need and that child needs, say, for example, speech therapy, that's a special expense. Really? 
it is considered yeah. a special expense okay. because it, it's not fair. So child support, a lot of times some clients ask me, what does child support cover? Well, child support covers your basic necessity, uh, the clothing, the groceries, you know, your basic necessities for a child. But it's not fair that from that basic necessity, the parent should now have to pay for additional expenses for the child that are special expenses. Sometimes parents, depending on what their um, religious values are, sometimes parents enroll children in religious schools. That's a special expense. So, so, you know, there are, so you have child support and then you have the special expenses. The difference I would say between both is don't assume that you will get contribution for a special expense right off the bat. A special expense is there will be contribution if both parties agree to that. So say, for example, if your daughter, Lucy, was enrolled in gymnastics and she was enrolled in gymnastics since she was two years old. And now Lucy is seven years old. So she's been doing gymnastics all, most of her life. That is now looked at a special expense. Mm-hmm. And both of you could agree to it that, you know what, it's a special expense. If you don't agree to it, you go to court and you say to court, look, this is a part of her life. And you know what? She needs it. And if the court says, yes, it is a special expense. And the next thing is, how do parties pay for it? And how parties pay for it is based proportionate to their income. Sometimes parties come to an agreement that, okay, fine, we'll just pay 50-50. Sometimes parties say, you know what? You make 60% more than I do, so you should pay 60%. I'll pay 40% of the expense. The other thing to keep in mind is that if you do have a child enrolled in a special expense, that cannot impede on the other parent's parenting time unless they agree to it. Ah, okay. So for example, if Lucy's going to gymnastics, but she's always gone to gymnastics, right? So the other parents, Shane says, I'll take her. So gymnastics stays. But for example, Shane says, look, I only see her for a limited amount of time you can't expect me to take her to gymnastics because that's eating up on my time, right? That, you know, so, so unless both parties agree, don't assume that, you know, you can enroll your child in soccer, karate, swimming, and the other parent, parent will take them. No, I think that's, yeah, that's, that's such a good point to make. Cause I I would have thought too, that those things kind of are, you know, not, not a new thing or hobby or skill, but perhaps something like tutoring or, I don't know if daycare is included in that, um, yes. but daycare is is section seven. Daycare is a special expense because it's a necessity for the child, right? Yeah, and daycare is expensive. So, I mean, for daycare, when you have look at things like daycare, you want to make sure that you know what the parties have tapped into all the resources available. So, can they get subsidy? So, say they are able to get subsidy, and the subsidy is fifteen dollars. So then you say, okay, fine, I've got subsidy. It's fifteen dollars a day. So now let's split that, Mm -hmm. you know, so you pay me half, I pay you half, you know, you can uh, both get receipts on it. So, you know, it, it it really is, it's a very child support, I would say is a complex issue because there are other, (laughs) you know, a lot of times people think it's just black and white. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of things that can fall in depending on your makeup, you know, the way you earn, the way you are paid, um, the amount of time you have your child in your care, you know, how you have your child in your care, what the child's needs are. Mm-hmm. As I said, you know, if you have a child who's on the autism spectrum, for example, their needs are different. Mm-hmm. And now, Aisha, if there was somebody getting divorced who is listening, uh, and this is the question I want to end off with, uh, is there just one thing you tell them to do if they were, you know, 
in the throes of a possible a possible divorce right now and looking to take the next step. Do you have any one piece of advice uh, for them? I would say to them, look, if you have decided that, you know what, you need to end your relationship, talk to a professional. Don't, it's healthy to talk to your friends, uh, for your coworkers for support. But the reason I say talk to a professional is because it will really kind of make you understand how you want to move forward, how you want to proceed. Sometimes in, you know, a lot of, a lot of times people have a lot of questions in their head, a lot of scenarios. Once you speak to a professional, maybe the matter doesn't have to be approached in such a, uh, in such a combative manner. You know, also, how are you going to safety plan your exit from the relationship? You know, a lot of times I speak to clients and I'm not going to say women. I'm going to both see both men and women. And they are in a situation where they've decided that I'm going to end their relationship, but they're scared at the impact it will cause once they let the other party know that they want to end the relationship. So they might need to make a safety plan in place. I find that once you understand what your what once because everyone's needs are different, but once you have a basic understanding of how the fallout will look like. I think you can approach the situation in the best way possible that will least impact your children if you have children and impact you. Mm -hmm. Because I feel like a lot of times individuals are scared. I can't tell you how many times clients call me. They're calling me from work because they're like, or they'll tell me that can I can only speak to you from two o'clock to three o'clock because at that time my partner's not home. Because as you said, the pandemic has changed the way people work now as well. So if you are thinking of ending the relationship, I would say to you, speak to a professional. And I'm, I'm going to say it doesn't have to be a lawyer because sometimes individuals are not ready to speak to a lawyer, mm. right? So if you have a therapist, if you have a counselor, someone who's professional, speak to them you know, to kind of understand, okay, I want to exit this relationship. How can I do it? Because, you know, maybe you don't, maybe it's not about the children. Maybe you're like, you know what? I know the other person will take care of the children. It's me. I'm worried that how they will react to me. Maybe, and a lot of times there's an imbalance of financial disparity between the parties. So one party's scared. I'm going to leave. And then I ask them, where are you going to go? I don't know. And Shelter is not the answer for everybody. So you know what? I would say to you, if you've taken on that step, you're deciding to leave the relationship. Before you do, speak to a professional, understand what, you know, what your rights are, what it what the breakup would will entail, how it will look like, and then strategize the way you will break the news to the other partner. Because you know, it's all about communication, how how you do it you know, uh, how, how you're going to approach the situation. If you're scared for your safety, definitely put a safety plan in place. And um, if it's not your safety, you fear, but you know, you fear how the other party will react and how it will impact your children. Maybe, you know what, you find the right, mm -hmm. you know, maybe you send the children away to your parents, you know, so they're not at home. Mm -hmm. So when, when you do break that news, it's just you and your partner and there's no distractions. Yeah, no, I, I think that is incredibly sound, especially if you are in a relationship where there is any kind of abuse in, in any regard. But Aisha, you are such a wealth of knowledge. And truly, I learned a lot from our conversation today. I wish it could go on for another hour because I still have questions that I'm thinking of right now. But it, it really is fascinating to me to kind of venture into that world and learn more. So thank you so much for sharing with me My today. Pleasure. 
And where can where can listeners go to find you, your firm, uh, whether it's like online, social media, anything like that? So my firm's name is Hussein Law. And you can, if you Google Hussein Law, you'll go on my website. I'm uh, I'm on Facebook as well, Hussein Law. I'm on Twitter um, under Hussein Law. I'm on Instagram under Hussein Law. So there are lots of ways to find me. The best way to get in touch with me is, um, you know, uh, if you go on my website, my contact information is there. Uh, I have my email address is there, um, ahussein at husseinlaw.ca. You can call me. And we, there are lots of ways you can get in touch with me. Um, sometimes I have some clients, they'll send me a Facebook message. Uh, but I think the best way to contact me is by email or by phone. I'm very proactive. I usually call my clients back within a day or so. And, um, you know, I want to thank you, though. Thank you very much for having me on your podcast. I really, it was a pleasure meeting you. Pleasure so speaking nice with Shane you. as well. Mm-hmm. No, I, and Shane is sad that he can't be here. He's watching the kids. They woke up too early to... <laughs> So, but he's, so he's upset that he can't be here, but truly Aisha, thank you so much. And on a personal note, you have wonderful hair and I'll, I'll leave it there. Your hair is great. I love it. (laughs) Thank you very much. I know, I noticed I did a lot of this. I'm like, and then I realized I'm like, oh my God, what is she doing? No, 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 you know, looks beautiful. But again, the hair aside, like, thank you so much for sitting with us today. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you very much. All the best. Very nice meeting you. Take care. That was Aisha. So good. So good. There was just her aura that I was, you know, getting through the Zoom call. It was just, it was strong. I knew she'd be on my side or on your side or who on ever side she's fighting for. And there was something just like compassionate and fierce about her that I loved aside from her hair. Uh, oh, her which hair was, was great. Perfect. I looked at the Zoom link. Yeah. It was the type of hair you want your lawyer to have. Yes. Yes. Power hair, I call it. Oh, it was amazing. And she's fantastic. So full of knowledge and really enlightened me in a field where, you know, as I admitted in the interview a few times, I know nothing. So I thought that that, you know, it was so educational, whether that is something that is in your future or not. (laughs) Well, it is. It's good. Honestly. No, I know. It just sounded so positive. Like whether this is in your future, it could be for you. Yeah. Well, here's the thing, because if you are. Here's the thing apparently I say that all the time, which I I do, I'm realizing. But uh, even if you have somebody that's close to you that is going through a divorce or a separation with their partner, just knowing a little bit about the legal stuff can be helpful in how you support your friend or your family member or whatever. You know what I mean? Yes. But speaking of being enlightened and uh, I don't know. Just speaking, <laughs> just speaking of being enlightened, Alex is doing the mailbag segment right now. I guess we both are, but let's face it, you did all the work. You took the questions in that the listeners gave you, you answered them, and now you're back here to share the wisdom that you've accrued through your internet research. Oh, Shane, you make it sound so uh, much more profound than it is, and I love you for that. But the first, the first question, I mean, you've already taken off my list, managing yourselves at the in-laws' cottage for two weeks, so that is done. Listen to the intro if you didn't hear that yet for some reason. The next question, I just, I took this entire email, and I'm saying it out here because it uh it's a little pat on the back to us hey have recently started listening to the pod and i'm a huge fan it's really thoughtful and joyful and i appreciate the energy that you and your sweet family put out into the world speaking of tennis have you ever talked about your exercise routine on the podcast i noticed on one recently that you mentioned you do at home workouts that you love and i'm curious if you've talked about it on the pod yet 
I hope you don't mind me asking. And I'm curious about how people switch it up at home. Thank you. So thank you so much uh, for those kind words. But yeah, we've been playing tennis when we can. Obviously, it's hard to get out the two of us uh, or even just me when we have two kids at home and Shane's on a work schedule and we have this business. It does get tough. But when we get the opportunity, if we have a grandparent here, I think we're pretty good at just picking up and hauling ass to the tennis court and trying to get a couple of good games in, which is my favorite way to move. It is my favorite form of movement. And for some reason, tennis doesn't strain my pelvic floor like running or like basketball does. I think it's because less jumping. I don't know. Less bouncing around. I love it. Then my at-home workouts, uh, I've been doing them off and on for a couple of years, but it's the Kayla Itzinas. I don't really know how to say her name. She has, okay, and terrible, terrible name. I want to preface this right now by saying the workout has a terrible name, needs to be updated, but it's BBG, so Bikini Body Guide. I thought there was going to be many swear words in no. there. And like, <laughs> I thought we were going to be canceled. Well, I'm very relieved that's what it was. Not yeah. that that's the right title. But. No, it, it's a terrible title, but the workouts are really great. Like they're so great. They take 28 minutes and they're circuit workouts. So I love it because I don't get bored. She gives you three a week and then you, you know, do them for two weeks and then you get new exercises to do for the following couple weeks. And it's just so fun. It's so quick. I can knock it out in a nap time. If I was a morning workout person, I could knock it out then. And what I love about a workout like this is that it's covering my whole body. So I'm strengthening my entire body. And if I can't do something because I'm physically not fit enough or not strong enough in that way, just modify it. So like I can't always do 10 burpees that's really freaking hard. <laughs> so I can do them once in my workout. If you drink enough of that carbonated water, you can. <laughs> and you have the wildest burpees, by the way. Okay, get out of here. So anyhow, I will do the first set of burpees and then maybe I will try to do more later in the workout. And if I can't do them, I just don't even think about it. And I do something else. Maybe I'll do sit-ups instead. Uh, but I really love how you can kind of, you know, tailor make it for, for yourself and your own body based on you know, your body's needs, what you're capable of doing, what your injuries, how they're limiting you, things like that. Are there any workouts called farties? What are you talking about? Well, I'm just illustrating here how burps are obviously more socially acceptable than farts because you would never have a workout called farties, but burpees is not weird or comical. Do you think it comes from like burping? I just think if let's say farties didn't come from <laughs> farting, I don't think the name would be any less funny. But burpees, no one's laughing. No, no, no. Well, it, it maybe when you're a there's kid. a hierarchy of rude bodily functions, and I think burping isn't that high. No, burping is funny though, but it's not that high. Anyway, next question: How do I prepare my 18 month old for daycare when they've only been with mom and dad throughout all of COVID? So we're in a similar situation, except it's with Lucy, a three-year-old. And, you know, I've kind of been thinking about this because she's great at staying with grandparents. She's great at being with us, but she's going into a new environment and she's at the point in time and at the age where she can be tough. She tests boundaries. She doesn't like being told no. She doesn't like sharing. So I think it's going to be a bit of a rude awakening for her. But I have three things that you can do you know, regardless of your child's age, if they're a little too young for some of these things, just, you know, adapt it as you would need to. But first thing, just visit, 
the care provider, whether it's a home daycare or a daycare center, bring your kid there and you know, introduce them to the people that are going to be looking after them. So that on their first day of daycare, they're not going to go and be like shocked. And who the hell is this person? They'll at least have some foundation and see mom and dad or whoever interacting nicely with the with the provider. If they can meet other children, like, you know, maybe in a home daycare, that's even better, you know? So talk about their new setting, make them familiar with it. Again, just so it's less of a shock on the first day. Next, Talk about the child care program. So, you know, in the months leading into it, especially in the weeks leading into it, talk about what they're going to be doing throughout the day, who they're going to be playing with, like even if you don't know them and, you know, what kind of activities they'll be doing just so that they can get an idea of what their life is going to start to look like. Uh, And next If your kid is going to be needing a totally new schedule, so like if they need to wake up earlier, forego a nap, like actually nap or do some kind of quiet time, maybe when they don't at home, then start implementing this routine if you can, maybe a couple weeks beforehand. But if not, if you can only get in a couple days before, that's awesome. Do that and just try to make this transition as easy on your kid as you can. I, th- I think doing all those things would help. Shane, do you have any other uh, suggestions? No, sorry. I kind of uh, <laughs> zoned out <laughs> a little bit. I have ADHD, okay? All right. So next, uh, what to do when your best friend refuses the vaccine? Already sent research and had lots of convos. So I actually had two questions that were very similar. Uh, this was from one person. And the other person that wrote it in with a similar question was saying how they have friendships and like relationships within their family that are becoming totally divided about vaccinations, not vaccinations, COVID being a hoax, COVID being real, things like that. So it's tough because a lot of these people are at this point very staunch in their opinions. They're very scared. Lots of different reasons. So you have to, well, you don't have to, but I was watching some doctors and psychologists talk about this and offer solutions to deal with friends and family who are, I don't know, I guess vaccine hesitant or refusing it altogether. But they said to listen to what they have to say and try to empathize. Don't just start pouring out stats on them or, you know, telling them what they already hear from the news and the media and everything, because a lot of these people already have a mistrust of all of that. But try to see where they're coming from. Ask questions that make them feel heard and make them their their fears feel validated. And then be prepared with things that you can say, obviously, like, maybe not all stats, but have a couple and just try to to softly counter their argument, but don't get in it to win. Just kind of lead them there slowly and then hope that they'll find it there on their own. Because I, I was listening to this other therapist and they just said, hey, it's too late. Forget it. Like they're, they're screwed. They're never going to want it and don't even try. Yeah. But I say maybe put the friendship not on hold, but just... Yeah. Dealing with them in person on hold and try to Zoom with them and maintain the relationship. And then when COVID's over, hopefully the truth comes out, whatever that truth is. We tend to believe that the vaccines are the correct truth Mm -hmm. to believe in. And then you can... Resume. Resume. (laughs) We we, You and I have a friend like this and he called us from Florida... And we just talked about everything but COVID. We just had a laugh and 
I made fun like just of the situation, like mm-hmm. just because that's all that's my way of coping. And I'm just like, OK, this is a lost cause. He's never going to be convinced. He's gone so far down the rabbit hole mm-hmm. that he's lost, in my opinion. But I love this guy. Yeah. And hopefully, you know, these answers come out and, <laughs> you know, and then we can be friends again. But until then, we'll maintain a, you know, once in a blue moon phone call friendship and uh, have fun with that. Because sometimes 99.9% just isn't enough for people. They want that extra 0.1%. What if Listerine doesn't get all the gingivitis or the germs? All right. So uh, the next question. I'm curious to know what you know about acids and skincare if you are breastfeeding. Okay. So I've spoken a little bit about this before in my posts and everything like that because when I was pregnant – you know, I, I really do like doing skincare. I find it relaxing. But, you know, flat out topicals like retinoids, they can be absorbed into your skin. They're more absorbed than other things. And they can, you know, slowly be excreted into your breast milk. Or, like, I mean, they could simply transfer on your baby. If your baby brushes your te- your cheek and you just put something on, or if you have a product on your hands and touch your baby, and it could it could harm their skin. So during pregnancy and breastfeeding is generally said to avoid BHAs and AHAs. And if you're into acids and skincare, you know that's beta-hydroxy acids and alpha-hydroxy acids. So to generally avoid them, however, okay, there's two AHAs that are deemed low risk. And here's the thing, with all of this stuff, there's so little research done on breastfeeding women, on pregnant women, a little bit more on pregnant women, but less on breastfeeding. Uh, But dermatologists and OBs pretty much deem glycolic acid and lactic acid, which are AHAs, they pretty much say that they're safe in low amounts because such little gets through your skin and then an even smaller amount is going to get into your bloodstream. So if you do want to go the acid route for, you know, brightening for, you know, skin problems, acne, whatever, try to stick with glycolic and lactic in, in smaller amounts. Uh, But hey, if you're breaking out like crazy in pregnancy and you usually use salicylic acid, which you want to definitely stay away from, buy pimple patches. COSRX or COSRX, C-O-S-R-X, makes the best pimple patches I've ever used. Wear them all freaking day, all night if you want, whatever, and they work amazing. But yeah, that's, that's the talk on acids for the day. Do you have advice for moving in and living with a partner for the first time? Shane, you take you start this one because you've moved in and lived with more partners than I have. I say just go along for the ride and see what happens. And I don't know, don't make too many ground rules early on. Just see how it plays out and then adapt and change and see if you like living together. I'm a huge fan of meeting someone, kind of falling in love and then moving in <laughs> right away with them. And people always think that's so unusual or such an odd method. But to me, it's like, okay, you have one life. Mm -hmm. You have a very short period of time where you can, you know, get your life partner potentially before everyone's scooped up. And uh, (laughs) (laughs) this is the way I look at it. You know, this is you probably have a a lot of time. But anyway, this is the way I was looking at it. And I just want to cycle through quickly until I find Mm -hmm. the love of my life as quickly as possible because I was really excited to find the love of my life Mm -hmm. and to me I I didn't want to be in my late 40s and having kids 
Because let's say I, I wait the requisite time, which a lot of people feel like after a year, that's enough time to have gone by to start thinking about moving in with someone. And then a year and a half, you move in with them. And then for me, it's like, well, this really dragged out for me after two and a half months. We're dating. <laughs> we feel good. If, if, if the dating's going right, we should be in this limerous period where we're really at a heightened state of love feeling. Mm-hmm. Now, whether it's... What's it called? Lust Lust. or love? That's yet to be determined. But why don't we just determine that real quick so we can both move on with our lives? So throw just throw yourselves into the thick of it. Deal with all of each other's, you know, idiosyncrasies and annoying things. Yeah, I forgot what the question was, but yes. Advice for (laughs) no, no, I know. Shane says do it now. Do it yesterday. Yeah, I I say the advice is just be you. Have them be them. If they're totally annoying, try to make some uh, little <laughs> rules. And if if they're not going to obey by the, your rules and guidelines and you can still tolerate them and love them, marry them. I like it. I like it. Just find your train wreck and go with it. Or whatever. Like maybe they're this perfect person. Yeah. Who knows? But I just wouldn't uh, soil the well. What's that expression? Soil. No, it's not soil the well. <laughs> poison the well. Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't poison the well up front. Mm-hmm. I would just. Like with rules and. Yeah, I wouldn't lines. be taking advice and everything. I would just go with the flow, see mm-hmm. what happens, and then make some calls at that point. Yeah. I, for me, I was going to say just I would manage your expectations. I have a very romantic view of things, I find. And, you know, this led me to have difficulties as regular podcast listeners know with conflict and with communicating and even communicating something like tiny. I have had, you know, big problems with that and it's been a huge learning curve for me. But manage your expectations. Why'd you look at my crotch when you said that? Get out of here. I did not. <laughs> and, uh, you know, just know that it's going to be a learning curve probably for both of you. And it's not going to be all sunshine and rainbows and you're waking up with, you know, sunlight bathing you every single morning and kissing and making each other breakfast and just massaging each other all Keep day. Keep going, Alex. It's I not, it's not going to be that. <laughs> <laughs> the magic that you're going to have ultimately in your relationship is going to be so unique to you and it's going to be so different than and realistic right more realistic than you would imagine if you're like me anyhow manage your when this person (laughs) shut off the podcast you're like okay no manage your expectations in many different ways and always communicate uh what you want what you need out of the relationship yeah uh next question how do you balance alcohol and breastfeeding do you pump and dump? Do you wait three hours? I've just had my baby and would like to enjoy some wine without feeling guilty. There are so many conflicting reports on the internet. Yes. And I'm not going to say to have that wine. I'm not going to say to not have that wine. However, I do have that wine. And I made this decision from talking to not only my family doctor, but two different OBs. So the one that I, you know, saw throughout my pregnancy and postpartum, but also an OB that I met doing stuff online. For everyone preparing their message to Alex right now via Instagram in the comment <laughs> section, please do it with kindness. That's all we ask. <laughs> Anyhow, so I'm just going to give you facts about alcohol and breastfeeding and you can make up your own decision here. But basically you metabolize alcohol in your breast milk the same way that you do in your bloodstream. 
Okay. So you don't need to pump and dump because you're wasting milk. That's going to be perfectly fine and alcohol free in a few hours, just like when you drink and then you metabolize that alcohol and you have zero in your bloodstream. It works the exact same way in your breast milk. And I mean, you only need to pump and dump if you're like engorged and uncomfortable, right? But you can just, you can wait. And then in a couple hours, the alcohol will be gone from your breast milk. So after one drink, the amount of alcohol that actually gets into the milk is it's like tiny, very minute. So it's less than 2% of what the mother drinks. Okay. And then it generally takes two hours for your body to completely metabolize all of that, according to the CDC. And you can go look that up. They have all the information there for you. But after that time, as I said, the, uh, the alcohol leaves your milk, your blood, altogether and you're good. So after about two hours, and again, this is all dependent on your height, your weight, things like that, but generally for women, two hours. So if you do want to drink and you do want to be extra careful, a good time to do it is maybe during a feeding session, as funny as that might look to people who don't understand that. But if you can be breastfeeding and having a drink at the same time, probably the best time to do it or right after. All right, so that way your body metabolizes the alcohol during just the natural intervals between breastfeeding. But I mean, in the evening, like if you put your kid down for bed and you sit down to have a couple glasses of wine, likely if your baby's old in a couple months, you're not going to be needing to go and feed them for at least a few hours. So you got time. I trust you, everyone, though. Consult with your doctor. Consult with your doctor. Drink responsibly. (laughs) I sounded very intoxicated while saying that, but I assure you I haven't had one drop of anything other than seed lip tonight. But hey, be nice to Alex, okay? Be nice to me. Because she's just reading stuff on the internet and kicking it back out to you free of charge. But that that was from my OB. But here's the thing. Talk to your own OB. You have to decide what's best in your unique condition Mm -hmm. for your unique baby. So don't take it from me. Talk to your doc. But yeah, babe, that's it. Okay. We're ending with that controversial. (laughs) (laughs) I like this. Okay. Well, everyone, what an episode. I mean. What an episode. Episode 99. It's like Wayne Gretzky or something like that. (laughs) But uh, we really appreciate everyone sticking around with us for this long. If you have been, in fact, sticking around with us for this long. And I just want to say thank you and leave a comment if you're so inclined. But if not, just thank you so much for listening to This This Family Family Tree Tree Podcast. Podcast, episode 99.